Greetings, everybody out there in dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. You are listening to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Broadcasting to you from the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast, the third coast of Texas. The darkest truths from the darkest web need to be told. And you must listen to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. The Beyond Top Secret Texan presents The Phoenix of the Western World Quetzalcoatl and the Sky Religion By Burr Cartwright Brundage Published by the University of Oklahoma Press 1984 Dedication. At some time in the latter part of the 17th century, in the Viceroyalty of New Spain, there was produced a manuscript that bore the name The Phoenix of the Western World, El Phoenix del Occidente. So far as is known, this manuscript was never published and has since disappeared. Undoubtedly, the great Mexican savant Don Carlos de Seguenza y Gangoro was the author. Or if it was not he, it was at least certain that he was somehow importantly implicated in it. This was the first monograph that we know to have been composed on the subject of the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl and to have been based on sufficient knowledge. To honor Don Carlos and to keep his memory green, I have here ventured to resurrect the title of his manuscript, applying it to the present work, which also investigates the god Quetzalcoatl. Are Quetzalcoatl, but Quetzalcoatl is also a pronunciation of it, or maybe going back and forth. Table of contents. Preface, introduction at page three. One, the sky. Page seventeen. The sky as a dragon. Some varieties of dragons. Sky versus earth. The sky as Tamonchan and the role of Xochiquetzal. Some speculations on Tanatua's lapse, Quetzalcoatl as the night sky. The providence and spread of the sky religion. The role of the sky in the creation. The shape of the sky and its denizens. The place of the sky religion among other cults. 2. The polymorphous god, the demiurge, the culture hero, and ancestor. The centrality of Quetzalcoatl, Quetzalcoatl as wind, depictions of Ehekatl, the anthropomorphic god, the Bukal mask, the Shinokwale, the circular shrine, the god's role in the creation of man, Quetzalcoatl as cultural hero, and Ehekatl of the principle of generation.
three, Quetzalcoatl as priest, the priest, Quetzalcoatl the sacrificer, auto-sacrifice and penitential practices, Quetzalcoatl as a sorcerer, Quetzalcoatl and the Tonopah, Quetzalcoatl in time, Quetzalcoatl and the Taloa of Teotihuacan. Four, Quetzalcoatl as a god of warriors, the warrior hypothesis, the Mixcoatl corpus of myths, see a cuthole. Telahaska Patakotl and the Dragon Pillars. The First Dawn. The Sun's Place in the Sky Religion. 5. Quetzalcoatl and the Underworld. Zelotl Introduced. Freaks and Twins. The Descenders. Four Movements. The Underworld as Telachu, Nanohotel, and Quetzalcoatl and Death. 6. The Place of Tezcopalic. Uh, Tezcatlipoca and the Sky Religion. Introducing Tezcatlipoca, Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca as Sky Gods and Creators, the Two Gods as Darkness and Night, Yohali Ihakatl, Tezcatlipoca and Quetzalcoatl as Tula, the Flight, Telaplan, Heameak, the Cults of the Two Gods, the Two Religions. And finally, Chapter 7. A recapitulation, descriptions and illustrations, notes, bibliographies, and indexes. That is a table of contents to be coming to be read. I will be leaving out the preface. No, I will not. I will be reading the preface. I'll be reading everything. Preface. At a work of synthesis such as this one, the problem of organization to loom large. But even more difficult of solution was the question of a style of presentation that would be personal and attractive. I finally chose to do the book as an extended essay rather than as a monograph. In other words, it is aimed at the readers of literature as well as the scholar. The late Sir J. Eric S. Thompson would have approved this style, I believe. Learning has become pretentious and has put itself in danger of forgetting the color and excitement of knowledge. The act of acquiring knowledge is ultimately of as much worth as the knowledge gained, for the latter is in any case tomorrow surpassed. The Aztecs may seem a strange, perhaps unprofitable people to ruminate on. Certainly, Tenochtitlan was no Camelot. But the love of learning has no roles, and an acorn is as good as an elephant to start with. My compeers will recognize in this book the delight of asking questions, though they will without doubt suggest other answers than those I have given. The god who is at the center of this book, Quetzalcoatl, is viewed as he appeared in late Aztec times, but I have made some attempt to account for him as he appears in other Mesoamerican cultures and in earlier periods. The main thrust of the book is descriptive and synthetic. It seeks to understand Quetzalcoatl as he stands in the heavens in the company of other gods. A definite study of Quetzalcoatl in all its ramifications would have required volumes, and I had no such gigantic project in mind. I present the book specifically as an addition to the field of the history of religions, more broadly as a work of the humanities, where the mystery of the divine and the tale of men's relations to him is always central. The book owes its visual appeal to Jian Minke, 
who did the line drawings to my specifications, but with her own meticulous touch. There were many other calls upon her time. Jean Cobb Scholes typed this major parts of the manuscript with admirable neatness and dispatch. To these two persons, I am most grateful. The book is to some extent theirs. Last but not least, I owe a debt to Doris Hayden for her graciousness in supplying me with material and answers from Mexico when they were unavailable to me here. This is written in St. Petersburg, Florida by Burr Cartwright Brundage. Title page. The Phoenix of the Western World. Quetzalcoatl and the Sky Religion. Introduction. After some contemplation of Aztec religion, I have found in what appear to be four nuclear emphases. For simplicity's sake, I shall refer to them as religions. These four religions are easily distinguished in terms of the god or gods who stand in their centers, who define their general orientations. For the purpose of rendering them easily recognizable, it is certainly permissible to put them in separate categories as I do here. Yet they tend constantly to bleed onto one another, to call upon the other's gods, even to share in their rituals. Such a network is natural to the preliterate mind, which eschews categories and accepts the universe as a whole. The four religions in a rough chronology of their probable first appearances are 1. The religion of fire. That of the earth is number 2. 3. That of the sky. And 4. That of Tezcalap. This book is concerned only with the sky religion. And will attempt a definition of it. But a word must first be said about the three others if we are to assess correctly the sky religion within the complex whole. The religion of fire pivots exclusively around the god Xutakotli. There are fire goddesses in his pantheon, but none even remotely affects the whole picture as he does. His name can be translated as either as Lord of the Years or Lord of the Jewel, where Jewel refers to the fire. Mesoamericans agreed that Shotekle was the first of the gods. He particularly displayed the quality of venerability in his avatar as Huhototli, the old god, and from his primacy came his designation as the father of all gods. Otherwise known as the All-Father. Chorus and the Huachals, even today, know him as Grandfather. He had several other avatars, not noticeably different, and one important embodiment as a fire dragon known as Shuakotl, which monsters performed also in the Sky Religion. Shuachi. Twickly lived underground. His essential fires hidden under the earth were reflected in the sky that glowed at dusk and dawn. Or they might be seen escaping through volcanic vents among the mountains. Out of the basically terrestrial derivation 
of the fire, the priests of the sky religion were to extract a contradictory myth, namely that fire was in celestial in origin because of its close association with the sun and the dawn. All of this can be duplicated among preliterate peoples in many parts of the world. What is impressive here is that the fire religion provided what the other three did not, an anatomy of the cosmos. And one of his avatars, Suchik Twickly, was the lord of the four directions. As such, he gave to men a solid basis for knowing where they stood on the earth, where the center was, and what were the symbols that contained the meanings of the four cardinal directions. He was also the genius of time. He gave to men the periods of coursing of time without which a sense of ending and renewals was not possible. Thus, the fire religion gave support to the other three religions, providing them with the uh, constitution that they could know to be reliable. There was another and more familiar sense of belonging that this religion gave to men. And the home, the hearth, was modeled on that divine hearth that burned a day and night in front of the house of Earth Mother in Technoctilon. That eternal flame gave validity to the domestic hearths and sanctified it. Consequently, the family saw its service to the old god as an original obligation to be zealously honored. The offering to him of the first scraps of food and the first drink like baptism with the new infant was passed through the flames. Were undoubtedly to the Mesoamerican peoples comforting and congenial religious exercises. The fire religion had a pronounced ancestral orientation. The religion held that the essence of all life was igneous. As the grandfather, fire was acknowledged to be the head of the lineage. The Atomi tribe, for instance, honored him as Atentukli, their progenitor of totem. Appropriately, the month of the fire god was the last one of the solar year or the first one, depending on how one wished to view the hi hiatus between endings and renewals. Every fourth year during that initiatory month, adults danced hand in hand with children to become new again. And at that time, the young were ceremoniously introduced to their true parent, fire. The religion of fire was the ground upon which two of the other three religions rested, and the form of light fire was prominently featured in the mythologies of both earth and the sky. In their rituals, fire was sin qua non. The religion of fire gave to men which safety there was in life, and with it light and warmth. As such, it stood in opposition to the cult of Tezcatlipoca, which was dire, pessimistic, and full of cruel chances. But even the latter religion had to accept a pyrogenous and fivefold world, the world as described by the religion of fire. Very different was the earth religion. In it, the earth was not understood structurally, as I have shown above. Rather, it was understood as an amorphous and sluggish power. It taught the Mesoamericans to see the world in terms of endless career of issuance, growth, and decay. As key concepts in this ponderous faith, Mesoamerican man used three passages connected with the human species, birth, burial, and the mating of male and female. 
By casting Earth as a woman, he made a fateful decision, for he thereby gave to Earth, which was a cosmic entity, something of the same aura of disguised hostility and irritability with which he... Got a scroll all the way up here. Clothed the woman. Burial was, of course, ritual parts of this religion and was the resting place of all man's nightmares and unwanted return to the cavernous mother. The religion of Earth obviously did not encourage contemplation. On the contrary, it blocked thought, perhaps therapeutically, and substituted for it a kind of torpid fascination. In it, apparitions were formalized and the dead frozen. There was a supremely important male god in the Earth religion whom one might at first glance take to be a rival to the Earth Mother. This was Tlaloc. Both he and the Mother could appear as mountains, yet Tlaloc was the mountain only as it conjured up thoughts of the waters reputedly stored within it and waiting release as the clouds of the rain. The Earth Mother literally was the mountain. The mountain was her body and flesh. Tlaloc lived inside the mountain, but the Mother was the numinous and granite core, the very roots of the mountain. Tlaloc sent the rain forth from caves in the mountain, but he did not produce men, plants, and animals out of his bowel as did the Mother. So in a sense, he was not a rival indeed, he can be looked on as one of her avatars. Earth has, of course, many avatars, and to mention even the chief ones here would be tedious. She ranges in her appearance from the spirit of salt to that of the sweet bath. At her prettiest, she is a lovely Aphrodite-like Xochiquetzal. At her worst, she is the skeletal lady of the dead. Whatever the Earth can suggest to man could become one of her avatars. In one instance, the mother seems to escape from the purely terrestrial and to make an exceptional leap into the skies, thus defying our categories. As the old goddess Starskirt, she is the Milky Way and the mother of all the gods, each of whom is thereby a star. As Telezotli, or Huastec, or Itchel, Maya, or Koyolashokwe, the Aztec, she can also be the moon. These avatars appear to contradict her telluric character. But we can recover the logic of this slipping of hers. And we can see that it represents hardly any change for her at all. Moon and Milky Way are plainly produced in the womb of the Earth and are born from her as night begins. So they are her daughters and can be classed as avatars. These specialized avatars were absorbed into the sky religion, permanently in the case of the star skirt, where in some cases they become indispensable in its mythology. The moon, however, remained basically terrestrial. 
There were no Aleutian mysteries, solemnized in Mesoamerican Earth religion, in which a celebrant could be moved to a higher plane or of comprehension instilled with a sense of mystic relatedness to the Earth Mother and her goodness. The Mesoamerican approached her not only with abundance, issue, and death were in question, not ecstasy. Thus, he could approach her only in social groups and not as an individual. He could never forget that first and foremost the mother was a monster, that one of her basic characteristics was hunger, and that as the spouse of the lord of the land of the dead, she eventually cannibalized all her children. Her veracity was not to be taken keening for some deeper and more humane attachment, but as a simple and irrefutable fact of nature. If repetition of rituals is the touchstone for spotting religious significance, then we may state that the earth religion was the foremost of the four. Of the 18 months of the Aztec year, 10 specifically celebrated the principle of earth, its fruits, and its powers. That is more than any of the other three religions can claim. We would expect this of the world that has left hunting and gathering as a way of life to till the soil. Still, we must not think that the Earth Mother appeared only when the beginnings of peasant communities and so forth, as one formulated of the supernatural, bit almost as old as man himself. The religion of Tezcatlipoca, or Tezcatlipoca, it was the only one of the four. with a truly universal extension, and in that respect it can show a faint resemblance to the biblical religion. It is circumscribed by nothing. Tezcatlipoca does not belong to the priest as does Quetzalcoatl. He affects men at all levels, and they can experience him in their capacities as individuals. Or again, whole communities can suffer or be carried to prestigious heights because of him. All of mankind is subject to his caprices. He has a far greater good than was Jupiter, with whom Bernardino de Sewagan compares him. Alone of the gods, he can flout the Tanalapala, the Aztec equivalent of fate. He is outside all restraints. No Decalogue applies to him. In his final formulation, he is not a natural god, and therefore no relationship to nature can restrain his actions. He delights in his own unpredictability. He is thus a majestic and other as the biblical god, except that he is lawless. To men, he is their ultimate enemy. To the gods, he is an outlaw, or better still, a scofflaw. Tezcatlipoca was thought to be the youngest of all the gods, being described as an eternal youth. Perhaps that is why his religion he is so small a part to play in the Aztec solar calendar. And yet, although his religion may have evolved late in time, he was certainly modeled upon the shaman, the most primitive religious practitioner of them all, and who long preceded the priests of Quetzalcoatl. Although only one of the 18 months of the ceremonial calendar was allotted to Tezcatlipoca, that one, called Tuscatl, drought, was generally considered to surpass all the others in importance. Tezcatlipoca has many avatars, most of whom are built upon the pattern of the boisterous and unrammable. 
or am ramble rambled sorry sorry untrammeled in brief is religion is and I've never read that word in my life and I have an English degree from Texas A&M University that is I've never read that word in my life untrammeled in brief, his religion is an attempt to codify the immoral and unforeseen as an important part of the human experience. The reverse of this coin is that the religion of Tesquilapoca institutionalizes man's apprehension of his own littleness and his crucial lack of security. The religion is clear. Religion is clear and unequivocal on this point. It has e even sharper focus than the fire religion, which is almost its exact opposite. Tesquilapoca is cast as pitiless supernatural power. The preacher of Ecclesi Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes would have felt on familiar ground with him. Tesquilapoca straddles both earth and sky and is a easily at home in the one as in the other. One of the best known avatars of Teleopiolotli generally depicted as a jaguar who is the god of dark caves in the earth. Again, Tezcatlipoca was said to have been cast out of the heavens for his sins or to have descended therefrom on a cobweb. He fathered avatars for both the earth and the sky religions, yet he remains always circumjacent to both. In my consideration of the sky religion, I shall be dealing at some length with this god, but I must emphasize that however active he may be in the mythology of the sky religion, he does not thereby become one of its pantheon. As an incorporeal and uncreated spirit of the universe, he remains truly outside nature. He would in fact be fate itself except that he can be appealed to. Thus what differentiates the religion of Tesquilapoca most clearly from the other three is its almost complete indifference to nature. One cannot point to the sky, earth, fire, water, space, or any other category of nature and say here is that upon which the religion stands and here is the element necessary for its understanding. Tesquilapoca's religion begins nowhere, embodies a god who is necromancer, and then ends nowhere. The other three religions have definite orientations. Undoubtedly, the religion of Tesquilapoca had the potential to develop into a monotheism, but only the religion of the sky could have completed such a work by equipping him with an inner law. And that did not happen. Mention of this un achieved potential of the religion of Tesquilapoca now brings us to the sky religion. It must be understood that when I talk in this book of the Aztec sky religion I am not talking about the strictly delimited or delimited church that insists upon its own gods and cult performances and no others. I have said above that it could and did mingle with the other three religions. Its ceremonies formed elements of the festivities of the other religions and in fact could be supportive of them. 
It could borrow deities from the other religions or lend them on occasion. There were no such persons who were specifically sky priests and indeed there was no single term that meant sky religion. By what right then do I devote an entire work to such an inexact concept? When I began this work, my objective was to present only the god Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent, to the reader. I soon found that even more than most of the other Mesoamerican gods known to us, Quetzalcoatl kept vanishing into the images of the other gods, and those gods unto others, and so on, in an extensible line. As an example, Quetzalcoatl could become Zolotl, which could become Nahuatl, who could become the fifth son, and so on. My control of these difficult materials faltered until I suddenly realized that the concentric circles of Godhead forming and reforming outward from the Quetzalcoatl were in toto the picture of a complete religion and that the feathered serpent was a center point or better still the symbol of an undifferentiated Newman at the center point. I then shifted the approach from research on a single God to that of a religion whose limited whose limitations could be set by the outer fringes of the several series of avatars of Quetzalcoatl. With this came the realization that Quetzalcoatl was far more than the protean god I had thought him. He was emblematic of a whole religion, and this religion, however, which may it have touched earth, fire, and the underworld, remained always insensually celestial. There is a serious chronological problem in all this, however, which effectively prevents any clear-cut presentation. We do not know how deep down in Mesoamerican time are buried the roots of the sky religion, nor for that matter do we now know how old the other three are. Did one of them precede the other three? Did they appear in bits and pieces yet simultaneously? Is what we have of their mythologies representative only of the post-classical periods? And yet we can assume that the symbols used in the first stages of the religion carry the same meanings that they were to do later among the Aztecs and the Quichis, for instance. Have no real answers to this questions. I have arbitrarily assumed that they have appeared in the order I have offered above, fire, earth, sky, and Teslapoca. But there is no evidence to support this assumption. It is useful thesis by which organizing the materials, but nothing more. The sky religion appears in art as early as the middle of the second millennium BC. Signs or glyphs representing the heavenly bodies, the moon, the planet Venus, and probably the sky itself appear first among the Olmecs. These were transmitted to the Mayas, who developed them further. The Sky Religion arose to a commanding position in the Halcyon days of the Teotihuacan and the Xichuacuatlo, and was slowly retreating in importance at the time of the Spanish entry. If one includes the many avatars of Quetzalcoatl, it is depicted more often in Mesoamerican art than any other deity. About the meaning of the Mesoamerican religions, complex in general in which the sky religion was embedded, opinions will surely differ. I see its beginning characterized by a feeling for the divine realized as a sect of vast numinous powers, powers that are somewhat later expressed emblematically as dragons, a sky dragon, or dragons, plural, an earth dragon, a fire dragon, and so forth. They were all of them chimeras made up of parts of other animals, each part standing for that characteristic attributed to the possessing animal. 
Along with these draconian beginnings went the animations of specific things. In other words, the attribution of will and supernatural energy in the many parts of the extra human world. The animism which pointed only to the discreet bled constantly into the draconian categories and in doing so produced gods. When visualized, these gods were the analogs of shamans and priests. The later god level, however, did not displace the draconian level. Along with both animistic perceptions and true gods, the above-mentioned dragons, which were large agglomerations of power, or agglomerations of power, sorry, continue to inform the universe. This threefold layering was certainly the situation in Aztec times when we find Quetzalcoatl was not only a dragon of celestial scope as well as the wind, but at the same time an anthropomorphically conceived god, an archetypical priest. Among the many changes that occurred in Mesoamerican religion was a real through tardy refinement of the concept of the divine. We note that this especially in the Aztec sky religion and the cult of Tezcatlipoca. Certainly members of the priesthood as well as leaders of such preeminence and Nezahualcoyotl were mo moving though awkwardly in what direction when they talked about a god called Yashuli Ihikarl with whom I shall be dealing later in the book. The Spanish conquest however brought any such tentatives to a grinding halt. In particular, the sky religion, non too homogenous to begin with, evaporated overnight and disappeared from history. In the course of this book, I shall use the name Quetzalcoatl to refer to a concept of the god either when I do not care to define him closely or when I am treating him as the sum of all his avatars. Specific avatars such as the Ihiquatl of the Si Akatl and the named were needed, but a Quetzalcoatl must be understood to stand before most of such names and to qualify them. Quetzalcoatl is certainly wind. He is the morning star. He is the priest par excellence. He is the power for generation. He is the patron of lineage, and so forth. Or he can be the combination of any of these and more. We are thus dealing with a god who developed multi-directionally, and who consequently does not wield a single overwhelming power as does Tezcatlipoca. It may be that the Quetzalcoatl was indeed conceived as a sovereign by his own priest and in their more speculative moments, but we have no hard evidence for it. My use of the name Quetzalcoatl was therefore a confession of my inability to discover a mon uh, homogeneity about him. Quetzalcoatl is an enclosure name for the pivotal deity of the Aztec sky religion. That, of course, is what makes him interesting. The fact that he is who is wind is also the morning star, who is also a warrior god, who is also a royal mascot, and so forth, presents us with a being of rainbow colors, a deity who is a master of kinetics. He raises innumerable problems and presents us with innumerable dilemma. Can a god who is always found in parts and categories be a single god? Should we not treat him as many gods and let the matter drop there? Is a god who can be appro uh, approached and petitioned by the devout so far particularized that his mana has disappeared? Is he in brief a living god, a tandem of gods, a mere concept or the symbol of a force? 
whatever and whoever he is, Quetzalcoatl stands at the center of a belief that the sky was one of the faces of God. He represents at the very least that majestical root fretted with golden fire, which at the same time could be, as the world's best poet says, a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. The scope of my subject is daunting. To capture the true sense of religion as in any case difficult, I have had to write the book mainly from the Aztec point of view, and most of the statements herein are based on data from late Aztec or Mestec sources. But I have allowed myself additionally to wander at random and out of the Mesoamerican culture and chronologies. Data will occasionally be drawn from the Olmecs, Mayas, Tarascans, Huastecs, even the Hochols. For such leeway I offer no apologies, but I do not wish to give the impression that I am trying to exhaust the subject in the manner of an encyclopedia. After all, this book is as much a series of ruminations as it is a defensible treaty. I have wanted to contemplate Quetzalcoatl rather than to prove points about him, and in the process I have offered several reconstructions. Before I begin, let us consider one concrete example of the Mesoamerican's thoughts about this god who is in the sky. From the Huastec area comes a statue of Quetzalcoatl that visually explicates, as nothing else does, the god's layered nature. This statue is meant to be viewed from both the front and the back. And the two views speak of different natures. Seen frontally, the statue is that of a youth tattooed on most of his body wearing only a kilt and pointed Huastec cap. There is no doubt about his identity, for he wears the back-curved shell eardrops peculiar to Quetzalcoatl. Surrounding his head is an airwale engraved with stylized dragons and a semicircular arch over his head. The whole means that he is the sky. Walking around the statue, the viewer sees that the back of the aureole is as before, fan-shaped and now engraved with the striations emanating from the head. The back of the head has become a skull, while a small skeleton hangs down from like a wizened cape reaching to the statue's thighs. This skeleton, Alter Ego, also wears the Huaxta cap and a kilt decorated much like that in the front figure. The feet and the hands of the gruesome creature are not bony, however, as we might expect, but they are clawed. Around the neck hangs a pectoral edged uh, with signs denoting the planet Venus. There can be no doubt that the back piece represents the avatar of the god known as Solote, an essential underworld being in the sky religion, the Evening Star. From the front, the statue has an undeniable presence. The impassivity of the face is noteworthy, while the richly engraved surface of the limbs, body, and kilt contrasts with the smooth modeling of the face. The stance is quiet and gives the impression that God is holding his breath. In fact, he represents the abeyance. There is no denying the formal power of the piece. Compared with the simplicity of the front statue, the back is emphatic and complicated. For the inertness of the perpet-like body speaks more lifelike human uh, visage upon which it hangs. 
It does not command respect as the frontal figure does. It is ominous and stores up the turbulence of thought. Both in the frontal and the dorsal figures, the sky and the evening star respectively were authentically the god Quetzalcoatl. The artist here successfully interpreted the nature of the old sky religion and its central god Quetzalcoatl. Through the language of art, a whole statement has been made about the divinity in the sky. 1. The Sky In the introduction, I presented the four major categories of Aztec religions, thought, those expressive of fire, sky, earth, and Tezcalopoca. I have chosen the second of these concepts as the subject matter of this book. And as much as the god Quetzalcoatl most nearly represents the sky, he appears therefore as the thematic figure in all that follows. The sky is defined as a dragon. His several appearances are discussed. The geographical spread of his religion is briefly noted. There follows a contrast between the sky and the earth religions. With something in this ambiguous connections between the two, I point up the latter in the Paradisian figure of Xochiquetzal, a mother goddess placed in the sky. The position of the sun god Tiamatu is treated to clarify his relationship with Quetzalcoatl. Myths of the creation of the sky follow, together with a list of the significant celestial beings, and finally the sky religion is sum summarized on... There are 13 headings that are diagnostic. The Sky as a Dragon For Mesoamerican man, integrated a number of items that we today would compartmentalize. Manifestations such as wind, clouds, rain, hail, sun, moon, stars, night, day, comets, and thunder. We are appalled by the illogic of creating such a catch-all rubric, but the native of Mesoamerican sky was less a result of diverse powers than a theater of the supernatural in motion. Far more dramatic than the placidity of the earth, as such it could be one thing. Sky was man's earliest book of tales, a single volume. Sky bound together day and night but was more imposing conceptually than either of them. Witness the extraction from it, the idea of time. Time, or at least paradosity, could be conjured out of the heavens, whereas Earth was inert, responding but not activating. This distinction was very clearly felt. Naturally, there was an attempt to see the male-female relationship between sky and Earth, but it never went so far as to become the anthropomorphic, only basically it remained conceptual. The word for sky and noatle is ilhawatle, a compound from containing the word ilhawatle, day, plus a gentilic ending, a possible translation being the one who is habitually in the day, where day is thought of as a habitation. In Aztec religion, I know of no god expressly referred to as unmodified sky. There is to be sure an avatar of Huatzalapochtli called Blue Sky in which only the sky of full daylight is referred to. 
He is thus not the overall Newman we are looking for, but he illustrates that at least the Noah-speaking peoples of Mesoamerica could and did deify a part of the sky. In Mesoamerican thought, sky was not therefore father sky as opposed to mother earth. Earth was indeed mother, but the Mesoamerican culture saw both sky and earth as dragons. The dragon is the product of the common imagination of mankind and is found in diverse cultures. In Mesoamerica, his most common name was Quetzalcoatl, and he was a near replica of the European dragon in whom he delighted as children. Our own dragon had a serpent's scaly body, a crested head, four limbs equipped with frightening talons, and wings that carried him through the air. This is as good a description of the Mesoamerican sky dragon, except that only that he is not generally shown with wings. He flies by virtue of the fact that his body is covered with feathers. Dragons appeared as armorial beings on French, Spanish, and English shields in the late Middle Ages and on Aztec shields of exactly the same century. In Renaissance art, St. Michael and George were appointed to be the slayers of these monsters, but there is no comparable slaying in Mesoamerican annals. A Mesoamerican dragon stood for a Newman sovereign in its own sphere, a being against whom none could come it did not, in other words, stand for the Leviathanic enemy of God or the wicked versus the good. Sky had no enemies. The question that arises for us at this point is whether the Mesoamerican sky dragon was a true chimera, emblematically crafted of equal parts of the several creatures, or whether he was basically evolved from one animal. In the case of the Earth Dragon, we all know that the animal modeled was the caiman or the crocodile. Two animals, bird and serpent, were basic to the sky. Dragon's ultimate design, both being epitomes of the motion, but the two, the serpent was probably the fundamental one. The mortality represented by the serpent appears to have been particularly suggestive in the shaping of the dragon. It is also suggestive in Nahuatl compound words for four dragons of various sorts have Kuatl snake as matrix, never totality, the word for bird. The coilings and windings of a snake symbolize perfectly the nimbleness and tenacity of water, the uncurling of smoke in the still air, the flailing water spout or the dust devil sweeping over the land. All of them functions of the air. Among the Hoachals, which we may consider a modern-day representatives of the ancient Mesoamericans, rain clouds are thought of as winged snakes. Indeed, almost everything in the air, smoke rising from burning fields, lightning, even fire itself, was thought to be serpents inhabiting the atmosphere. The Sky Dragon was thus the end representation of a long appreciation of the part played by the universe by motion, and we must keep this in mind if we are to understand the several avatars that he produced. For one, who wishes to clarify the further the meaning of the dragon, 
the question of the specific genius of serpent that models for him naturally arises. Five generation of serpents could have been involved. The rattlesnake, the coral snake, the bushmaster, the furry lance, and the boa. All but the last are venomous and highly dangerous to man, and all but the first are confined to the southern and lowland parts of Mesoamerica. The rattlesnake alone was familiar to all of Mesoamerican peoples. Whether they came from the watery inlets of the Quantana Roo or from the cool highlands of the Zacatecas. He existed in several highland species as well and one extensive tropical species, found in southern Mexico and Guatemala. Thus Maya, Veracruz, and highland cultures could have built their concepts of the dragon on the rattlesnake alone. And in the man, that is what seems to have happened. Or in the main, that's what seems to have happened. From Olmec times down to the coming of the Spaniards, the dragon was generally distinguished by rattles. In the Maya area, however, the boa shared honors with the rattlesnake as contributing to the formulation of the dragon. There, the sky dragons were patterned on a boa constrictor, and at such times he was associated with Chuck. The Maya Rain God. This is an easily understandable application of a water principle to the sky iconography, for the boa was a snake with a distinct aquatic preference. In the late period, the coral snake is closely associated with the goddess Tlaxlotle as an emblem of sexual sin, and very seldom in the codices does it assume the proportions of a dragon. Nor does it have any overt associations with Quetzalcoatl, with which I am familiar. The two, uh, uh, the Fairy Lance and the Bushmaster, undoubtedly are somehow involved, but the evidence for this involvement is clouded. I have said that the generalized concept of the snake evoked coextensive concepts of mortality and renewal in the Mesoamerican cultures. The narrower concept of the rattlesnake aided the idea of the atrocious. Thus, the fully evolved sky dragon spelled out a conjunction of motion or apotheosis and of danger. The regenerative quality of snakes who slow their skin to become new again seem to be like the dawn, the reappearance of a familiar god. The slipperines and their coilings were like the smooth flight of the stars. Mixed in with all, it was the hazard and the sudden strike of the rattlesnake. This latter characteristic displayed the quality of the Mesoamericans believed to be the most indicative of the sky. This quality of peril. Added to this prototype serpent dragon were important elements taken from the Quetzal bird. Its crest, tail, hooked beak, and at least later the color of its plumage. The Quetzal is a shy, beautiful dragoon in the cloud forest with an altitudinal range of four to 6,000 feet in Central America. Formerly, it was prevalent in Chiapas, but probably never extended very far west of Tuantepec. The Quetzal wedded to the rattlesnake was the preferred model of the sky dragon. Its rattles were the thunder, its feathers the rain, and its gaping mouth the wind. The sounds as though the origins of the Mesoamerican sky dragon have been solved, but as such is not the case. Jaguar, fish, crocodile, and even human traits occasionally appeared in the depictions of the monster. 
Even the rattlesnake is not the sole ophidian donor to the dragon. For the bushmaster and probably the boa constrictor were also contributory. The latter particularly to the role of custodian of waters. In other words, there were other heraldic interpretations of the celestial monster in Mesoamerican tetratology. Besides the one modeled on the Quetzal serpent motif, and we shall consider them briefly. Nevertheless, the bird serpent is the only one of the several varieties of the dragons who become in time a leading deity. Or deity. We call him Quetzalcoatl, which literally means green feathered serpent. The first dragons depicted in the archaeological record come from the Olmec scripture from 1300 to 700 BC. On the southern arc of the coast of the Gulf of Mexico where the habitats of rattlesnakes and quetzal birds overlapped. An imposing representative of this creature is to be seen as a well-known monument in La Vente. Here the dragon rears and coils behind a personage who is obviously a priest. Inasmuch as he wears a replica of the dragon's head as a rabahuli, a headpiece. The dragon is shown as a thick but well-formed rattlesnake except for its head. The head is an exaggerated beak-like snout and pronounced crest, both characteristics of the Quetzal bird. The brows are developed backward in a fashion that was to appear constantly throughout the succeeding centuries. No feathers are discernible on the body, however. The priest is sitting slumped over with his legs outstretched and holding an incense bag. From his position, we infer that the dragon has either engorged him or, in some sense, struck him down. Above the priest appears an apron or loincloth with a symbol resembling the St. Andrew's cross on the belt. No doubt a priestly garment. At Chautcadzinko, an Olmec site in the highlands, a dragon again with the St. Andrew's cross and with a crocodilian definition appears to be in the act of destroying a man. Billowing clouds or perhaps winds issue from him. Where in Almark art, the dragon is shown with forked tongue and feathers. Usually these dragons are connected with caves or with the rain and water symbols. It has been thought that the Olmec dragon was iconographically suggested in the beginning by a series of cloud or wind volutes surrounding or attached to a mask-like face. There are indeed some remarkable depictions of storms from the Olmec cultures. One, for example, shows a seascape with turbulent winds and clouds over which seen broods with great frontal face of a masked god, undoubtedly the Storm King himself. Winds issued from the grotesque mouth and human figures appear and then are carried away and overthrown by the blasts. What is of interest in such fragments of the explicitness of the phenomena depicted, for there can be no doubt about the subject matter, it is a hurricane. Whoever the god in the center may be, we can surely identify him as a predecessor of Quetzalcoatl. There is no suggestion of fertility or the growth of plants in such a representation, which would of course more closely suggest the god Tlaloc. In the following centuries, artists interpreted this creature would have seen the separate volutes of subsequently arranged to form a serpent's body with projecting wind scrolls, after which the curls adorning the body were thought of as feathers. When he appears somewhat later in the Esipan art, the sky dragon has become even more fanciful. 
He has in fact become amphibianic, having a head at both ends of his serpentine body. In this guise, he represents the overarching sky. A probably in its east-west orientation. If this is so, then we can read into a further reference, namely that of an oceanic entryway and a corresponding place of exit from the sun as he moves relative to the sky, thus disgorging the sun in the east and engulfing himself in the west. One would normally think of this disposal and release of the sun as being a function of the earth, but as the Izapan peoples on the shores of the Pacific saw it, the solar and stellar bodies subsided into great waters which appeared to be connected with the sky. This double-headed dragon lasted throughout all of Mesoamerican art, not disappearing until the end of the Aztec culture. The celestial Numen with the single head became the dragon familiar to us at Teotihuacan, Xochilacoco, and Zichen Itza, and in the Aztec codices and sculptures. Here the blind tongue of the serpent is stressed, or the bifed tongue of the serpent is stressed, and the feathers specified to be the blue-green tail feathers of the Quetzal Tragoon. The dragon is bearded and he spews forth destructive winds and clouds. Crocodilian characteristics are lacking and he is presented as a rattlesnake. In fact, so outstanding is his Ophidian characteristics that he can be suggested simply by a stone pillar carved into the likeness of a vertically piled up set of rattles. The heterogeneity of elements of the sky was accurately reflected in the number of beings that could go into making this the greatest of all Mesoamerican chimeras, and yet his basic unity as a snake was preserved. What he evoked in the Mesoamerican imagination was probably threefold. A great celestial rundle that flies unseen above one's head except when it blows forth clouds. A convolute pathways of all stellar objects and finally the home of hurricanes and the darkest of night. Its potential lethality was stressed from the earliest times. Such in brief was the Mesoamerican sky dragon in his several forms. A veritable basilisk with shining eyes who is both night and day. Some varieties of the dragon. The Quetzalcoatl form of the dragon mentioned above is one that will interest us particularly in this book, but we must note that the Mesoamerican imagination went far beyond this construction. Many other fig dragons were created and some were to become important in iconography and myth, almost all being classed as serpents, that is to say the word Kotal serpent formed the last element in their names. When thus modified with the preceding word, the word Quotle took on the meaning of dragon. For the most part, these chimeras were creatures of the sky, and the original ones continued to exist alongside later derivative forms. The plume serpent, for example, and the bicephalic dragon can be shown in the same codex. There was a form, a form more generically conceived than the Quetzalcoatl, and this is the cloud dragon, or the Mixquatl. If they think of the slow, uncoiling, mushrooming of comalous clouds in the summertime, we can see how the concepts 
of the serpents and the cloud could easily interpretate or interpretate to create a new way of thinking about the sky. Indeed, it seems to me possible that the Mixquatli, the sky serpent whose body was suggested by boiling clouds, was antecedent to the less naturalistic Quetzalcoatl. The word Mixquatl means tornado or whirlwind in exactly the same sense as does Quetzalcoatl. It is perhaps even possible that the original name for the boreal god was Mixquatl, the name Quetzalcoatl coming later. This development from one to the other could have been brought about to artists who early depicted the sky dragon. We have already seen that the earliest depiction of the sky dragon, the clouds were symbolized by Vilutes attached to and running the length of his body. In some depictions, they were shown as segments of his body scarcely connected. To the artist, these may have been called to mind feathers, as indeed would be plausible when a serpent who flew through the air was in question. Inasmuch as the long green-tailed feathers of the Quetzal Dragoon were precious articles everywhere in Mesoamerica, uh, Mesoamerica and symbolized water, the artist would accordingly have thought of them as being the particular feathers representing clouds and feathers thus becoming one, and some and the same insofar as the sky was concerned in Mesoamerican thought. Only later did a separation appear as two deities emerged, the original cloud-flecked dragon and his later avatar, the dragon with feathers. The early identity was never forgotten, however. I believe that Mexicuatl was a fundamental hypostasis, which this would follow from the fact that the feathered serpent in mythology to become his son, the sea Akatol. Next in importance was the Shuhakatol. The word is difficult to translate because the first element can mean either year or turquoise, which carries the secondary meaning of precious. The meaning was generally taken to the latter one. Zeroquatl appears in mythology and cults as a fire-breathing dragon that Huatzalpochitl can hurl as a weapon at his enemies, for which reason the name is sometimes loosely translated as the fire snake. This dragon is closely connected with the sun, symbolizing the light in the sky, or the sun's rays. He carries the sun on his back throughout his daylight journey. He is, of course, a path of the sun throughout the void. In art, he generally has two forelimbs ending as talons. In some depictions, flames lick round his body, which is made up of a short series of encasing segments. His tail never shows rattles, but ends in a very distinct solar ray or flint knife, both of which characteristics differentiate him from the Quetzalcoatl. His snout is adorned with back-curved horn edged with stars. Alternately, he or a dragon like him can have the body of a turtle, the carapace being easily distinguished. There were also four directional sky dragons, who sometimes doubled as the Atlantis, who held up the sky, one at each of the four cardinal points. The best known of these quadru uh, quadruplicate, dragon, or quadruplicate dragons from asset culture is the Itzquadl, shown with obsidian knives set along his back as hackles. Among the Mayas, the four world directional dragons were the Chichen, who lived in caves and waterholes, brought rain to people, and they can have human forms from the waist up, but below they appeared as feathered serpents.
Indeed, sky dragons of all varieties stalked over the land. The stretch of coast running from the home of the Totonacs to the Campeche, the old Almec heartland, was known by the Aztecs as the original breeding ground of the Quetzalcoatl dragons, most of them being associated with high winds. In fact, the great city along the coast in Aztec times was Quetzalcoatl, the place of the dragon pyramid. Farther inland, the dragons were known as Quetzalcoatlatli, flying griffins, the noise of whose wings was deafening. So horrendous were the later that they finally succeeded in depopulating one of the valleys in the Teotihuacan region. As of late 1529, one appeared in the northwest warning tribes of the approach of the infamous Nuno Bolt Train de Guzman. Dragons existed everywhere, and in one of the codices, at least 14 minor variants are depicted side by side. So persuasive were the pervasive or the idea of the chimera and the Mesoamerican iconography that it would have been strange if bird and serpent were the only prototypes used in their construction. There was another dragon built in the Saurian armature and often depicted like the iguana or the crocodile with four legs and the typical horny hide of the latter. If the serpent was translated into the sky to produce the celestial dragon, just considered the caiman or American crocodile primarily represented the waters of the earth and by extension the earth itself. The creature was known in Nahuatl as the epically, or the, sorry, the sipically, and that's spelt C-I-P-A-C-T-L-I, the sipically. The Sipakli is not particularly close to the concept of the dragon discussed above, for he was strictly terrestrial, yet he must mention here he must be mentioned here because on occasion he seems to merge with the celestial dragon. The reason for such conflation is that both dragons were symbols of water, the sky dragon as the rain-swollen clouds, and the earth dragon as the crocodile wallowing in the rivers and swamps, suggesting the primeval mire thrust up when time began. Thus the waters that were held in the heavens were symbolized differently from those held within the earth, Ophidian in the one case, Saurian in the other. Yet the distinction was not neat. In Chiapas, the feathered serpent was he who went about in the water, and in the codices he is shown inhabiting deep lakes along with the Sipatli. The best known example of the interpretation of the two dragons, sky and earth, is certainly Itzamna, the Maya god. There are still uncertainty regarding the deity. I offer here only the few facts that seem to be commonly accepted. The name Itzama means Iguana House. This deity can appear as true chimera as the sky pouring water down on the earth. He is probably an iguana, but he can still have serpent, crocodilian, and even deer attributes. He is a sky and earth together. He is quadruplicate the monster he formed the four sides of the sky overarching and meeting above, plus the earth as the floor below. Thus he accounted for both sources of water, celestial and terrestrial. He is painted blue. 
His elongated body is divided segmentally into sky glyphs, and he may have a mouth at both ends. He is not shown plumbed, or plumed, and he never has an avian head. In other words, he is not Quetzalcoatl. Obviously, he is an elaborately conceived, but we know him as late classic form. That which his predecessors may have been is unclear. Among the more graphic of many versions of the Sky Dragon is another one favored by the Maya artists. He is often bicephalic, and his body is a long joined band of glyph boxes, each box referring to an aspect of the sky. Each box contains a glyph, one for night, one for the planet Venus, and one for the sun, one for the moon, and so forth. Few of the glyphs can be read with certainty, yet enough can be made out to see the representation of the dragons in something like our zodiac. In some instances, the center of the hand, the position would correspond to the zenith, the mythical Moen bird stares out at the beholder. Or the center may be taken up by the head of the Koek dragon, seen in face. He being the thunderstorm, Newman of the sky. As a visual statement, the dragon stands at the end of the centuries of observation and speculation and implies a highly institutionalized religion. The Aztec like this in their iconography. Many of the arts from the earlier levels of the sky religion did not come down to them, at least did not form the found expression in their art. Along with its heraldic derivatives, the serpent is found everywhere in Mesoamerican iconography. It is the commonest of themes and it interpretates all art forms. When one today walks through the splendid Aztec Hall of the Museo Nacional, the serpent and the dragon overwhelm one of their abundance and elusiveness. The power inherent in the draconian symbolism was such that new forms and avatars were constantly spilling out of the pristine mold. Our own European dragon came to this thread our Florit, just as the time became ripe for him to retire to fairyland and nursery. That was because by then he was no longer symbolically conceived. No religious meaning of any consequence supported him. The Mesoamerican dragon was on the contrary, was the central figure in the sky religion as well as an important embodiment of the earth itself. As the sky, the dragon continued to fascinate the Mesoamerican down at the time of the destruction of their cultures by the Spaniards. At this point, I must mention an important variation, or rather an extension of the meaning of the dragon. One of the commonest icons of Mesoamerican art is the god within the dragon's maw. Its antecedents are seen as far back as Olmec times. Some, perhaps many, of this kind of dragon encasement can be interpreted as earth entrances or caves, but the one that particularly interests us here would prefer to be called the Dawn to Dusk Dragon. This chimera is to be thought of as determinately ambiguous while still remaining celestial. The face of the gaping jaws represents the indigestion, the indwelling, and the spewing forth of a god. Any one of all of these meanings if the god in question is the sun, he can be either said the sun consumed by night or the emergent morning sun from night. If it is the planet Venus that is in the question, then the only context tells us whether the evening or the morning star is truly meant. The ambiguity was designed to extend also to the dragon, within whose jaws the god appears. 
We ask ourselves generally in vain whether he equates with the western or eastern portals of the sky or possibly with the consuming and ejecting earth. Are can he exclusively the sky and the underworld or is it entered and abandoned by the stellar beings? Who are probably correct in saying that it is impossible to separate these identities with what is intended as their exclusive idea enlarged to cosmic proportions. A situation wherein it is irrelevant to inquire whether the dragon is the last celestial fire in the western sky or the western hills waiting to swallow the sun. The Mesoamerican thought the dynamics of the dragon were basically celestial, best seen on the planet Venus from the Sea Cattle, which is a notorious wonder. A creature or constant motion. Earth supplies us with several forms of the dragon. The Sipakle, the Koak monster, Latlokle, and others. But the inert Sipotle, who is the most representative of these earth dragons, is not polymorphic. He is always and only a crocodile, or the caiman. On the contrary, Latlokle is a truly a dragon of the earth. But she, or it, is a dragon only for the purpose of devouring life. She is neither feathered nor winged, but is mainly depicted as a toad. Merely as a dark maw gaping upward. Nowhere to my knowledge does this dragon appear with a face within its jaws. However, often it is shown engulfing men and gods. In other words, there is no ambiguous slippage of meaning between Tlelotle and her victims. She is a monolithic and rigidly defined and evokes only one reaction. The celestial dragon, however, particularly the one with the god's face within its jaws, is kaleidoscopic and elastic in meaning. For it can stand for the falling down of the sun into a sacrificial pit or the reawakening out of the night sky of the dawn star. Dusk and dawn mingle in their crypt Pescular lights in the icon of the sky dragon with the god's face within it. Yet, however fluid the meaning is, it remains celestial. It certainly may refer to the sky of daylight, but more generally it evokes the two terminals of the night, dusk and dawn. And in that sense, of it implies night as a place of death and probable rebirth. Occasionally, the god within the dragon's jaws is known with closed eyes as if he was dead or not yet awakened. Peltsnik Tukli, the sun god, who will emerge in the east. When that is the case, the dragon is incontestably the nocturnal sky. The dawn-dusk dragon marks a departure from the unalloyed concept of the sky. It takes into account the presence of God with very specific, not numinous, attributes. This attributes can be one or more of the following. Warlikeness, computational and augural skill, cultural patronage, lineage, protection, or sacrifice. The face in the maw is thus a mythical extension into specificity of an originally numinous being. Sky versus Earth I have posited the existence of a sky religion in Mesoamerica that is most easily grasped in the ubiquity of the dragon in arch. It is also roughly presented in several cosmogenic myths. 
Inasmuch as this religion must be at least as old as the Almecs, whose archaeology is still only in its beginning. I am not sure of myself in describing its origins. What follows, therefore, is not one, only one possible reconstruction. Out of the concept of the sky is a vast unresolved Newman, where finally to be extracted the symbols needed for the further elaboration of the religion. These symbols were at first mainly dragons, as we have seen. Then, as chiefdoms finally arose, the new elite class associated with them endowed a subgroup, the priesthood, with the responsibility of placating, aggrandizing, and utilizing the dragons and their conjuries. Not that there were no other deities, there undoubtedly were, indeed there were probably many, among them the corn spirit, the genius of wild animals, earth mother, the storm king in his mountains, and the patron of fire who lived in the volcano. The sky dragon, however, held out possibilities denied to the other nature gods. At no period was the sky as concretely imagined as was the earth, for it had been first a bundle of concepts rather than a formed and adequately visualized god. Earth, the lump-like mother, terrible in her hugeness and in her deathly appetites, was felt, it is true, to be an integral being, but she was stiff and inflexible. Because of her clay and stone nature, she could not be developed as easily into a more spiritual form. Most of the nature gods had severe limitations imposed upon them. In general, they did not move out of the initial area of activity in nature that had been assigned to them. Sky was different in that it invited manipulation, being itself shapeless. The manipulators were the priests, the new subclass differently organized from the earlier sorcerers or shamans. They were petitioners, not ecstatic or coercers. And through the pleadings and argumentation in their psalms, they became the first intellectuals in those early societies. I have stated the above narrowly. The idea of a priesthood, once produced, would naturally be adopted by many important deities. It would have been instantly appreciated by all the priests who were useful middlemen in cultures of growing specialization. Depending on the nature of its particular god, a priesthood could be assigned to other than the basic cult activities. Some priests, for instance, could be allotted to Methiopic invention and could be become involved in the formulation of specific religious claims as over against other cults. They could even expand the god through new and exciting theatrical effects. Those of the sky persuasion were par excellence scholar priests and they were powerfully supported by the new ruling elite, who expected in return a religious validation of their social positioning. The details of the above reconstruction cannot all be true, but there is a likelihood that the framework will stand. If so, then we can understand why the elite first settled upon the sky as the numinous source of prerogatives. The sky was protean and impalpable, and therefore could be easily shaped. The colors of the sky changed with startling rapidity. The sky empties itself of clouds and then like an arcane receptacle fills up again to repletion. The sky suffers the partition of the sun, moon, and stars. 
It stretches overhead into opposing forms, night and day. Rainbows and comets invade it. Birds spiral up into it, and fires glow in it at dawn and dusk. A tree or a mountain can pierce it. The tree, particularly with its apical uh, ascent of branches, easily suggests to the priest the mind levels of heaven, thirteen in all, and each populated by different societies. But because inconsistency and variety of forms also characterize the sky, its priesthood was not likely ever to reduce it to an easy unit. Owing to its profusion and aspect of eerie movements, the sky did not play the same kind of role in Mesoamerican religion as did the earth. Earth was changeless, and concept of time could not be brought into association with it. Whereas in the sky, moving creatures such as stars and clouds had wills and moved according to their whims or to the failures of energy. Earth was first and foremost a locus. It had no part in the gyration of things. Earth could not, however, escape a certain celestial influence. The great Earth Mother, the engulfer and the womb of renewal, was often identified with the moon, with the Milky Way, or with mountains that invaded the sky and gave rain. These were extensions of the Earth concept that gave rise to such great avatars as Talatzolotl and Sitalalinuku, the Moon and the Milky Way, respectively. If Earth thus suffered some permutations because of the influence of the sky, in reverse the sky was affected by the Earth. The periodic transformation of the celestial vault from day into night suggested it. In Mesoamerica, the inferior or the interior of the earth, which was symbolized by the jaguar, called forth infinite speculation. It was exactly the arcane interior, entered only through caves and fissures in the rock, that was the home and birthplace of the stars. Also, it was the wandering place of the sun after its setting. Such a nocturnal hiatus uh, cried out for an explanation. It could be interpreted in two ways. Visually as a projection under the earth of the night sky overhead, or conceptually as the region of under earth out of which march the stars and into which drop the sun. It was, in other words, a baleful but still partly renovated world. As a chthonic region, the underworld was Miklan or Zebulba and the land of the dead. As a celestial region, the underworld was simply a translation of the night sky into other and even darker terms. The sky as Tamanchan and the role of Xochiquetzal. We have seen that the sky as a sliding dome over one's head had its most inclusive emblem, the feathered serpent or the dragon. This was the sky that was crowded with clouds, demons, and divine furs. All or divine fires, sorry, all in motion. When the sky was considered as a place, however, it could be thought of as Tamanchan, a paradise of sensual delights. The word Tamanchan is Mayan and comes to us from the southern part of the central Mexican massif. It it was an undoubtedly early designation of the sky as a land 
of Kakagain, but the designation had almost disappeared by Aztec times, having been replaced by Tololacan, the abode of the god Tololac. I shall comment later on Teomanchan. All I need to do here is given the accepted translation of the word, place of the Moan bird serpent. In the preceding sections, I have presented the dragon as basically Ophidian here, as an emblem of Tomanchan, the serpent and bird are equally invoked. The resulting chimera thus becomes a kind of basilisk rather than the dragon as I have described him up to now. From Teotihuacan comes a most interesting representation of this creature as it's descending from the skies. The half-bird, half-deity. Its outspread wings show wind jewels, quetzal bird heads, and of course, feathers. The body is designed to represent clouds, but also shows wind jewels, which, as we know, are the particular symbol of the god of the air. The tail and the legs of the creature are also marked with quetzal bird heads to signify the waters of the sky. The creature's two hands are scattering flowers, and the face within the open beak of the bird is identified by its mouth painting as that of the goddess Xochiquetzal. It is not generally recognized that the male Quetzal Trogon, famous for his emerald coloration, shows on its breast an equally striking area of a bright crimson that is almost a violet purple. This latter coloration, in fact, must have been especially apparent to the hunter looking upward into the high foliage of the rainforest, more apparent than the emerald of the bird's back and tail feathers. What more impressive symbol of the sky as a whole than this most beautiful of birds, a bird whose plumage could symbolize not only the waters in the sky, but also the great shining light that punctuated it, the sun. The Quetzal bird thus represented the widest possible range of celestial phenomenon and can be adjudged to be a proper symbol of the sky. The bird also represented beauty. However, and as such, it was very emblematic of the goddess Xochiquetzal. In Teotihuacan art, there bore, or that being worn in her hair as an ornament. This apparent shift to the feminine needs to be explained, for up to now I have given the impression that throughout Mesoamerica the sky was thought of as masculine. First, it is to be said that Xochiquetzal is not the sky and is not as what's Quetzalcoatl, an expression of the Numen of the sky. She is rather the goddess who inhabits Timonchan, the upper level of the sky. She represents not the sky itself, but the flowers that the sky with its fertilizing rain and warm sunshine calls up from the very earth below. In this sense, she is still the great mother specialized in floral guise, who has been taken out of the earth and etherealized as a queen of beauty as an upper earth or upper element that is not hers originally. Tamanchan is an unlikely home for this goddess, unlikely because as one of the basic forms of the earth mother she belongs below, ponderous and terrestrial. There is however a logic in her being in the sky. The stairway by which she ascended into the heavens was the Satchik Tetlea Kakan, the world tree 
with its 13 branching levels thrusting upwards into the heavens, the topmost of which bloomed with eternal flower blossoms. Such a rarefied level had to be by definition a paradise, and accordingly called for a sovereign who could accord with its floral atmosphere. Thus, Xochiquetzal. Mesoamerica was not backward in its knowledge of the many stages of sophistication that could be attained in the sexual arts, and it had early created an Aphrodite to symbolize them. The Nahas called this goddess Xochiquetzal, our precious flower. They lifted her out of the soil and rock of her real home and placed her as here in the summit of the heavens exactly as the Quetzal bird in art perches on the top branch of the flowering world tree. She personifies the life of sensuality that the human mind imagines as a possibility but can never command into a reality. The sky was a possible habitat for a goddess who was an avatar distilled out of the Newman of the earth carrying with her the perfume and beauty of its flowers. Yet in a strange way, this queen of love always remained an alien in the sky, even though she reigned there as the paragon of sex, womanhood, and beauty, she could never quite tear her roots out of the sky. As proof of this, her mythology has this to say about her. Because she was earth in its floral exuberance, we have seen that Zetchiquatzel legitimately lived in Tamanchan, the Garden of Delights, where all was feasting, sexual joy, song, and overflowing abundance. Two high gods, however, had attached a taboo to the flowering tree that stood in the center of the garden. The goddess disobeyed this in one junction and tore off a floral spray. Thus she ceased to be Itzcapochtli, the virgin. The tree itself was cracked and bled and thus forever lost its pristine health. For this sin, the goddess was cast out of Timonchan to descend to the earth. Some said that she descended as a demon, or as a variant has it, the goddess was seduced into sin by Tezcatlipoca, who then carried her off as a punishment into the underworld by Zolotl. Whichever version we care to read, the core myth remains. An ancient sexual admonition was flouted and with it paradise lost. And so the goddess returned to her more congenial home, the earth. Depictions of Xochiquetzal in the codices can show a coral snake representing lust, a scorpion representing punishment, and a zolotl creature, the underworld personified, all peeping out from under her royal throne. She was said to be the first female to sin, and she was accordingly viewed by the early friars as the Mesoamerican Eve. We are thus allowed to interpret the descending bird from Teotihuacan, which I described at the beginning of this section as perhaps an avatar of the goddess. The bird appears in many forms and places. In Palenque, as a type site, we see the bird standing on the pinnacle of the blossoming world tree. 
It is obviously the Quetzalbird and has some hints of the dragon, for its beak and wings are derived from that creature, and it is adorned with the wind jewel. The bird of the sky, in fact, cannot really be separated from the cosmic tree and is simply a statement from its apical essences in the topmost heaven. The Mayas were intimately acquainted with the Quetzaltrogon, with which they called Cook. As an emblem of the sky, this bird assumed for them a semi-draconian form as the Moen bird. The Maya word Moen means drizzle or cloudy, and thus can be a reference to the sky waters. It is also the Maya word for the screech owl, which gave the Maya mythographers the right to create the chimera of the sky on an avian model. Such puns are common stimuli for the human imagination. The feathered serpent is an emblem of the sky in its totality, but had been fully evolved in Teotihuacan. But now we find that there is also a sky bird. We may properly ask whether the second avatar of the sky embodies a different emphasis in the iconography. In the art of the Palenque, we have seen the bird as the spirit of the world tree, placed in its top branches. It can also be drawn as a bird's head in face and placed in the middle of the sky band. There is then no apparent connection with a female deity such as Xochiquatzal. The sky band is always divided into glyphic sections, each box indicating a feature of the sky, sun, moon, and planet Venus, night, and so on. The band as a whole is treated as though it were the elongated body of the dragon. From this we must assume that the bird in the sky signifies exactly the same thing as did the feathered serpent, namely the totality of the items in the sky, but perhaps with a slight emphasis on the life-giving rains. The Tomanchan, the abode of the Moan bird serpent, can thus be loosely translated as cloudland. For the sky as the habitation of gods, we have two names. Omiyokan was the 13th and highest level of the heavens and was the seat of the two high gods who sent souls down to earth for their incarnations, whereas Tomanchan was, as we have seen, the upper level of the sky viewed as paradise ruled over by Xochiquetzal. The first was a premium mobile and authoritative source of all the vitalities of the world, a needed philosophical basis for the works of creation. The second was the crystallization of man's expression of himself, his needs and desires. Timonchan was built around a cosmic concept, namely the world tree, but its flavor was in every sense very worldly. The difference between the two can be even more easily captured in the divine descents that were made from each of these two heavens. It was the god Quetzalcoatl who came down from the Omicron to bring culture and awareness of structures to men. From Tomachan, it was the goddess Xochipotzal who descended bringing sensual delights symbolized by flowers. The difference is underlined when we recall that the purveyor of culture was the god of air or sky, whereas desire was brought by an avatar of the earth in the last analysis sky remained masculine. Same speculations on, or some speculations on Tumatua's lapse. The unquestioned paladin in the sky was, or should have been, Tonatua, the sky god. 
He was described as residing in his glorious abode surrounded by beautiful birds that once were redoubtable warriors. He is there the summer of masculinity and iron-hearted Tayako, our hero. His mythology speaks of him as the creator of all things, as the giver of victory on the battlefield. He can be referred to as the Teletoni, as if he were king of the gods or Eloakua, the possessor of the sky, or even as Itzel the unique god. In view of the preeminence of his, it is surprising that he is not portrayed in the likeness of a dragon, as is the morning star. The art of the post-classic period can portray the sun being carried across the daytime sky on the back of a fire dragon, but the two, hero and dragon, do not merge. Like the other gods, the sun cannot take different figurations. How can be Tsloke Nahoke, an over-god who is so vague it is to seem little more than a cosmic abstraction? He can be most powerful of the gods in Teotihuacan, or he can be Hetzel Potli, the parochial god of one tribe. Such a wide range should have been made Tonetio rather than Quetzalcoatli, the central figure of the sky religion. Yet except on occasion he fails to achieve such status in the Aztec period. His regalia reflected this, for it is simple and undeveloped, even unimaginative. Zippe, another sun god, is far more universal than Tonetua. He personifies the warmth of springtime, the new verdure, and the birth of the young of men and animals. At the same time, he stands for vigor and the skills of war. Why, in the instance of the god Tenetoya, did such a spread of qualities narrow down to the martial alone? He should have been the touchstone of all celestial meaning. Why, in the religion of the Aztecs, was Tenetoya solely a warrior? The answer must be because of Quetzalcoatl. After all, Heroism is a narrowly conceived aptitude. When Mesoamerican societies began slipping under the domination of warrior lodges, when the role of the Teletani was no longer a was appropriation only but was concentrated even more on the feeding of the gods, at the point the sun god was shorn of its whiter effulgence, as his worship was concentrated in the hands of one part of society, namely the warriors, his ability to interpret all aspects of society disappeared completely. All religions show a contrapital tendency that is basically rational. That is to say, the need to explain things and to allocate responsibility in the heavens in turn will demand an increasing cohesion in a mythology. Usually this needs is satisfied by giving to one god a veto power over the others, or by setting up one god as an Olympic ruler or as a senior in age and wisdom. There are many ways to embody this in myth and doctrine. Besides Tonatua, there were other sun gods and avatars of sun gods in Mesoamerican religion. But in the late period in the central highlands, we hear of none after the narrowing of Tenatua, whose powers were augmented so that they filled a central position. Instead, it was the sky that in the person of Quetzalcoatl was augmented. But we know the sky to have been diffuse and many-faceted, joining in itself wind, planet, stars, rain, and even the sun. Yet, while Quetzalcoatl invaded and usurped some of the sun's mythology, he was never called the unique god. 
Thus, when Tenetsuwa failed, it was not a simple substitution of one god for another which occurred in this long quest for religious unity. As it turned out, Quetzalcoatl also was blocked from acquiring the sovereignty when, as legend has it, he was successfully attacked by Tezcatlipoca in Tula. Few gods of the post-classic period, however, match Quetzalcoatl in the varied character of celestial jurisdiction. Little or nothing is really known about the course of Tenetio's failure, if it was failure. It seems that the warrior caste must have increasingly defined his cult of the one sa of sacrifice after battle, rather than as a seasonal sacrifices for sunshine and well-being, thus substituting death for life as the orientation of his worship. Naturally, this would have been not an oscillation from pure white to black, uh, but pure black, but a change in emphasis only. It was enough, however, to free and intensify Quetzalcoatl's ability to assume new avatars. In other words, as the sun, Tanatua, was increasingly commanded, or commandeered by warriors, so the sky, Quetzalcoatl, was stretched to fill out some of the interstices resulting from that shrinkage. One of the solar niches into which Quetzalcoatl and the avatars entered indeed almost usurped was the realm of Yohotanatua, the night sun. Many ancient mythologies, such as the ancient Egyptian, have typically viewed the sun's progress through the underworld as a heroic enterprise, a successful foray against subterranean enemies. Most of the Mesoamerican peoples did not see it in this fashion. However, instead, by increasing the powers of the evening star, who was God Zolotl, and Quetzalcoatlus, the evening star, making them twins, they arrived at a belief in the capture of the sun in the underworld and his death on the sacrificial stone at midnight. Even when reborn in the underworld, the sun was not able to re-enter the daytime world unopposed. To ensure his rising, he still had to engage the morning star in a duel to the death, and only then was he finally proved heroic enough. To explicate the depreciatory view, the myth and the sun was reworked. The Hartu soul god now absorbed into the deathly persons of two deities of the night sun, that is to say he became deathly himself, and Maya lore, the sun was specifically the lord of Zabulba, the underworld. This situation is tantamount to the destruction of the sun's independence by the evening star and the morning star who then knew him. The concept will be expanded later in this book. This recasting of elements of sun worship by the Quetzalcoatl priesthood is well displayed in the story of the fifth sun. He is presented as an avatar of the god Nahuatl, who is a form of the evening star, who in turn as Quetzalcoatl's twin. In brief, Quetzalcoatl has succeeded in a roundabout way in actually becoming the sun itself. We cannot therefore see the Mesoamerican sun god as always joyous and interpret adventurer of the skies, for he turns out to be simply one of the celestial beings highly susceptible to contamination and weakness. Once he slips below the horizon, the sun is forced to come to terms with the greater mythology of Quetzalcoatl. Quetzalcoatl as the night sky. The night sky was identified with the jaguar not only because of the immortal of the animal's nocturnal habitats, 
but also because his spotted pelt could be seen as a reverse picture of the star-studded night. But an even more fundamental identification of the night sky was made with the feathered serpent. And the night sky, as we all know, was a kenning for the underworld. There were two sides of the same coin. In the primitive understanding of the night sky, the stars and constellations had to be explained. By Aztec times, the stars, or there were at least five major explanations. One, that the stars were unblinking eyes peering down through the night. Two, that they were the dead, unnamed and sometimes hostile spirits. Three, that they were the souls of their ancestors, generally friendly. Four, that each one was a god's avatar or was his seat in the Imperium. And five, that they were the Zitzamene, the demons of indiscriminate menace often thought of as female. The first four were not so far apart as to give rise to separate systems of thought. They were all set against the background feeling of inquietude, or a situation in which ancestral ghosts easily become pseudo-divinities, vividly experienced in the unsettling gaze of the evil eyes in the heavens. The fifth interpretation, however, imputes a total malevolence to the hosts of the night sky, and on the basis of it, the Nahas fashioned Zitzamittal, a great goddess of the night sky and the very compendium of horrors. These were popular readings of the stars and they had some importance also to the priests as over the centuries the sky religion developed. <clears throat> but the dynamic center of the priestly religion was not the stars, which after all were only items, but first the sky itself, the dragon, and in particular the dragon known as Quetzalcoatl. As a celestial being, Quetzalcoatl had two appearances and therefore two habitats. In the one, his place of origin, as befitting the deified sky, was the topmost, or thirteenth heaven, known as the Omiyokan. There he lived with two high gods, and from there, in anthropomorphic form, he descended to earth on his various missions. We can call this form of the god Ekatl, air or wind. He was thus already partly abstracted from the sky and had formed as a cultural hero and progenitor on the earth. Otherwise, he was specifically the night sky, and his dwelling place was the Milky Way. This second Quetzalcoatl was a demiurge whose role was cosmic. It is the later nocturnal aspect of the god that we are considering here. <coughs> the Quetzalcoatl who represents the night sky can be shown as a vast feathered serpent coiled in a circle around a rabbit who represents the moon. It is this Quetzalcoatl barely moved down in status from the all-encompassing Newman who in myth participated in the great ordering of the universe. In one version of the myth, the old celestial god Sitlatunak created Quetzalcoatl by breathing on him, whereupon Quetzalcoatl thus revived alone and unaided formed all things. Or again, the old god informed the earth mother that she could conceive without sexual intercourse, whereat she did and bore Quetzalcoatl. The more widespread version of the creation myth 
has the High Guard install both Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca as Lords of the Night Sky, and it is they who set about creating all things. It must be noted here that Tezcatlipoca, whose animal was the Jaguar, was also a god of the night and the interior of the earth, a situation roughly parallel to the identification of Quetzalcoatl with the night sky. Demiurgic action thus resulted first from a celestial decision on high that designated the two actors, both identified with the night. These were called to perform the great task. When the Milky Way was made, both Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca were then assigned as its custodians. There is an interesting gloss to this myth, namely that the latter god, after the creations, changed his name to Mixcoatl. And Mixcoatl is really only another form of the Sky Dragon, in the same manner as was Quetzalcoatl. Thus, we light in the very ancient concept of the sky as a double dragon. And the myth that we have been considering suggests that Quetzalcoatl, when seen as a demiurge, should definitely be thought of as a nocturnal rather than diurnal one. What we then have is a Mesoamerican belief in the sky as at first radiant as the persons of the two high gods, and only then as creative through the persons of Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca. Both decisions and actions are attributed to the sky, with contrasting pairs of deities representing each. The pairing goes back at least to Isapon iconography, wherein the sky is shown either as two dragons, heads down in the east and west, or as a single dragon with a head on each end. The reason for preferring night to day as the template upon which to form a model sky says much about the human imagination or at least about the Mesoamerican imagination. One might think that the sky of day filled with moving cloud shapes and colors would have been assigned the primacy in this regard. The human imagination, however, is the child of mystery and the slave of the unknown. That is to say, it is stirred more by the sense of secrecy and impenetrability of darkness, which may yet be illuminated than by the glorious light which so obviously fulfills in every way. More specifically, however, there is the fact already noted that there was an overhead wax thought to be the Mesoamerican people to be a coiling and twisting serpent, <clears throat> whether single or double-headed, and added to this was the knowledge that the serpent casts his skin and is renewed. Day is renewed from the cast skin of night, not the reverse. The Mesoamerican imagination in many ways depicted the firmament of night as the primate sky. Later in this book, I will have occasion to introduce the avatar of Quetzalcoatl known as Zolotl. Looking forward, I shall here simply place in the record the fact that on each of the nine steps of the underworld, that is the night sky, Quetzalcoatl sacrifices a divine being called the Yolacuatl. This being, the Lord of the Night, stands for the corpse of the sun, which must be revived. And Quetzalcoatl is that spirit in the night sky who, by sacrificing beings, brings about this regeneration of light. He performs each one of the successive nine sacrificial acts in the person of a different avatar.
Together, they represent the mystery of the night sky. <clears throat> the providence and spread of the sky religion. The fact that this religion was a holy in the lands of a class of disciplined priestly experts encouraged them to seize all opportunities to expand it. Just because it was not geared solely to subsistence activities, the religion early established an essential urban outlook. It preempted great centers such as Cholula, Xochicoco, and Chichen Itza. Later in this book, I shall deal with the ball court, the Tlacho. Here, I need just mention that in the archaeological record, the ball court is diagnostic of the cult connected with the feather serpent. It is certainly evidence for the exportation of ideas that had been originally developed within the context of the sky religion. I do not intend a survey of the spread of the Quetzalcoatlay motifs. That would be a book in itself, which inevitably in the vast distances between Costa Rica and the Mississippi Valley would have changed their meanings to some extent. What I am rather emphasizing is the power in the religion that enabled it to attain such a geographical spread. No other Mesoamerican god traveled as far. Perhaps the most interesting examples of the spread of the religion are to be found in the great species of northwestern Mexico, extending all the way up into the American Southwest. At Casas Grandes, ball courts appeared soon after the first appearance there of the plumed serpent. Then, at the sometime around after 8600, the Hohokam peoples of what is today southern Arizona were integrating ball courts into their irrigation-oriented culture. They suddenly appeared with a set of symbols that included horned bird serpents and double-headed dragons overspanning the earth and marked with sun and star signs. Later in time, the Hopi, Zuni, and Pueblo peoples became familiar with the sky dragon. In Zuni, for example, the sky dragon is Kalokawais. He has goggle eyes like Taluk, a curved horn like the Zeocotl, and feathered crests like the Quetzalcoatl. This are, these are admittedly isolated examples, and they are mentioned only to show the unusual integration of the image as it was passed over successive frontiers. Much more certain remains to be done with the feathered serpent as he moves into the cultures of the northern lands. We are guessing that Quetzalcoatl came originally from the lowlands along the Gulf of Mexico, and we have arbitrarily given his name to the Olmec Dragon. And the Aztec texts that have survived Quetzalcoatl is said to have appeared first in the Huxteca, the northwestern extension of the Olmec coastal strip running roughly from the Notley up to Tampico. In myth, the earliest memory of him went as follows. The first ancestors appeared out of the waters of the gulf and landed on the coast near Papatun. No one could say whence they came. They were led by certain learned priests who had charged of the sacred writings and who carried their god Quetzalcoatl with them as a bundle. But contention grew up among the people, and as a consequence the wise men took the god and disappeared with him into the east. They left the prophecy that he would return at the end of time, when troubles should have humbled the ungrateful tribes. The place where the people were at the time when the wise men left was called Tamoanchan. Another version of the legend has it that from the coast, Quetzalcoatl directed his steps onto the central plateau. While a gloss on this connections of Quetzalcoatl specifically with Talonsico, 
a city guarding the route between Teotihuacan, the Great Center in the Highlands, and the coast of the Hoaxteca. When we consider that in iconography and regalia worn by the Ihecatl, the wind or the priestly avatar of Quetzalcoatl are holy Huaxtec, we cannot fail to see them as native to those parts. His earliest appearance there have been, as we have already seen, the Almec Dragon. Nor were his coastal origins ever forgotten even after his cult had spread to distant parts. At the time of the Spanish entry, the old coastal provinces of Tuxpan and Atlan parts of the Huaxteca regularly supplied as tribute to Mexico, to Mexico blankets featuring Quetzalcoatl's wind jewel as well as conch shells with extended wings. Few other provinces in the empire of the three cities featured such symbols of the sky religion. The ruins of Taijin near Papantla uh, corroborated the connections mentioned above in the legend of the first landing. Taijin reached its peak in the period AD 600 to 900, but had been a holy site far earlier. If the Totonac word Taijin means lightning, thunder, or hurricane, as the official guide to the site assures us, then the city may have been sacred to Quetzalcoatl, god of the windstorm. Representations of Quetzalcoatl both as a dragon and as a priest are prominently displayed in the ball courts of Tajin. I mention Tajin here as possibly a holy city of Quetzalcoatl because it is the capital site from which the ancient road ran westward over the lowlands to the escapement and then up to Talansico, which commanded the vital passes. As noted above, myth clearly disconnects the gods with these cities. From Tolentzico is the only a short move to Teotihuacan. This axial road between the Huasteca and the great urban center Teotihuacan is important in explaining the appearance of Quetzalcoatl in the highlands, but there were other routes as well, notably one pass through Chalcancinco. The paleology of the sky was known to the Aztecs in two myths. The first of the myth of the creation, the second the myth of the sky collapse, and the subsequent reinstatement. These two cannot be logically linked together, for they were designed by the priests with different ends in view. In the first myth, it is interest that centers of the architecture of the universe and the vital role of the two demiurgic gods intersect. This myth is a kind of magnificent, remote, and antique one. The second myth is more urgent, almost ominous, describing a juncture in time when history began to emerge from nature and then to complicate it. In the creation myth, matter first existed in a cosmic disconformity called La-Tuli, or the Earth Lord. Two gods, Tezcatlipoca and Quetzalcoatl, were assigned to the task of creation and they performed it through a process of separation for they split the great mass in two, raising the upper part to become the sky and leaving the earth as it was to form below. And just as under the earth there existed the Tellurian waters, so above and within the sky there existed celestial waters. These hidden reservoirs possessed both fructifying and destructive powers. The sky, however, was an entity that was precariously balanced and in need of support at all times. Four supernaturals were accordingly designed to hold it up, one at each of the sides, or coordinal directions. With the cosmic structure thus ready, the two celestial high gods, Setla and Linko, which is the feminine, and Setla Tatanak, which is the masculine, 
Next, fixed the stars in their places and appointed the two demiurges to oppose custodial positions in the sky. The Milky Way was to become the track through the sky that the two demiurges traveled. Night itself was a supernatural and came into being through the promptings of Yotokli, the Night Lord, and his avatar, Yakahatsli, the Sharp Nose. As an ultimate support for the sky, Tesculapoca changed himself into a world tree. The Tree of Mirrors, while Quetzalcoatl did similarly, become the cosmic green willow. Thus one can think of the sky as supported either by four Atlanteans or by two trees acting as end posts. The myth of the sky collapse was glossed by the mythographers as having been that catastrophe with which ended the Aeon or son of the water goddess Chuitliku in the series of eons or suns as it was variously the first of the fourth ages. Either way, the fit is not a bad one, but there can be no doubt that the tale once stood alone and was not integrated into any series. It reflected man's early and common concern that the sky was basically unstable and could someday fall. Many cultures have reflected this great fear time and time again. What interests us here is the appending flood story. In the version in which the event takes place at the end of the first sun, the sky came crashing down, killing all the giants who then inhabited the world, but no flood followed. The other version is more explicit, when the sky, which was basically the bed of an ocean of waters overhead, collapsed. It let loose devastating floods. This scenario gave the mythographers an important opportunity to introduce speculation concerning early man. If one told it as the tale of one of the five world cataclysms, then all the men of that age were drowned or became fish or mermen living in the ocean. On the other hand, if one told the tale as folklore, then it concerned Tata and Nene, the first human pair. Alone of mankind, this pair was saved by Tezcalapoca, who's instructed them to climb onto one of the great world trees and to hollow it out as a vessel. They were thus saved from the flood, but because they learned at that time to handle fire, which was strictly a celestial prerogative, the gods punished them by changing them into dogs. A more history-minded version has seven human beings saved from the flood. The ancestors of the seven tribes who issued out of Chicomostec a cluster of ancestral holes in the ground. In the second tale, the sky is the home of authority as well as the seat of avenging deities. Fire was generally assigned by the Aztecs to the Earth's center, but here, consonant with the dogma of the sky as primary, fire is seen to be the celestial in origin. The Quichamayas told a better organized tale of creation. Sky is only one of the elements in the story, although it is stated to have been the pre-existing element. At first, sky and silence made up the totality of things. Under the sky, the flat ocean stretched out endlessly and incorporated the two demiurges, Tipu and Tezcalapoca, and Gukamats, Quetzalcoatl. Earth was created by bringing mountains up from the abyss and thus draining away the waters. The Mixteks, like the Aztecs, began with a pair of high gods living in the sky. 
which is supported on the point of a sacred mountain. These two first gods of the Mystics were once shown wearing Quetzalcoatl's regalia, attesting to the sky's primacy. Present in the above myths is the sky's the initial scenario against which creation takes place. Either the sky is numinous all precursor that needs no explanation, or it's symbolized by Quetzalcoatl, who in the sky and is inhabiting winds. Such myths prove that the Mesoamerican sky religion was not formulated as one term of dualism of the sky versus the earth. The sky religion, through the active imaginations of its priests, simply presented itself as intellectually necessary in any attempt to understand the cosmos at all. There exists one more myth, almost biblically, uh, alluding to the creation of the sky. The great god, high in the heavens, who is called either Tenochtitlan or Sitlalatuk, was nocturnal counterpart, sent a messenger down to Chimalma the earth goddess in Tula, informing her that she would bear a son who would be lord of the air. Tenaklutli performed this miracle with his breath alone, so that the goddess remained a virgin. In other words, Tenaklutli blew on the earth and produced the sky. How seriously we are to take the tale which becomes to us from the devout Christian friars is debatable. The Shape of the Sky and Its Denizens Thus far we have discussed sky as dragon or dragons, and we have viewed these beings as essentially animations of a place. However bizarre it may seem to us, the Mesoamericans found it congenial to endow the sky with animal movement and vitality. But they could also view the sky in terms of the structured abode, a mansion of many rooms sculptured out of immaterial air and inhabited by various gods, bogies, and powers. It all depended on whether one was talking about the sky as a place or as a being. They could express the architecturally. In Teotihuacan, for example, Teotihuacan had six superimposed levels. If for the moment we can assume that this was deliberate, then we can see it in a model for ascent for the eastern horizon to the firmament with a subsequent descent into the west. The whole number of steps would then equal 12, which would, when capped by the shrine on top, the heaven of heavens, gives us 13. In Aztec lore, there were 13 heavenly levels, and they were probably read in the manner suggested above, as though the sky were a six-terraced mountain, but they were also read in latter fashion as if only ascent were in question, with the descent omitted. Thus, the summit was not the seventh, but the thirteenth level, called Omayakan, the place of the two. When Omayakan is defined qualitatively, it becomes Tamanchan. We have already run across Tamanchan in the high heaven wherein the world tree flowered. This tree was essential, as we know now, to the worldview of the Aztecs in the sense that it served to define them for what sin was and what it was to its occasion. There was a well-known myth, a doublet of the Xochiquatzal myth, that the first sin was committed at the beginning of things when seven gods who lived by night in the heavens defy the taboos against touching the tree. For this Tonectucha, Tenectucli expelled the seven from their celestial homes. They descended to take up lesser stances in the air, earth, and underworld, where they thenceforth operated and became known to men.
This is the story of the loss of paradise, a loss incurred not by the mortals but by gods, and it therefore presented sin as being a corruption in the very center of the sky religion itself. The list of the culpable seven, ver uh, seven deities vary slightly, but all are sky-connected. Quetzalcoatl, Tezcatlipoca, Tlahezcoatl, Estzpapalotl, are pro prominently mentioned. It has been suggested that the seven represent the seven planets, and indeed the tracing of the seven planets across the dark field of the stars might well have brought to mind a fall or earring of seven celestial deities. For the Aztecs that thought the original sin was a defect of the divine must have created intellectual problems, at the very least blurred the historical record of their society, of the functioning of the world was the sum of the activity of truncated gods, there could then have been no possibility of paradise regained and certainly no eschatology of heaven. Such thinking of course need not have affected any of the other three religions, who all could have paradises. The myth we have been considering however does present one god in the sky religion as somewhat ambivalent. This god is Tonak. Kutli. In Aztec mythology, there were four sets of paired high gods, male and female, respectively. Omectukli and Omechotl, Tonectukli and Tonakotl, Sitotlotnak and Sulatunaku, and finally Sipatonal and Oxamoco. All of them are celestial and are never found in any place but the sky. There, sitting at the apex of the heavens, they act as ultimate authorities. There, they are of course some differences of the respective the mythologies surrounding them, but basically they all are formed on the same pattern. They are crypto-numinous beings who are sexually differentiated to explain the fact of progeny. They are in fact the first pairing, and were occasionally referred to by the friars as Adam and Eve. Thus, the home of insemination and porturation is seated in the sky. Earth also displayed this power of procreation, but did so with more physiological directness. In that view, men issued from the seven caves, which was the primeval womb of our species. The production of offspring by the celestial high gods, by contrast, was on a more conceptual level. For the spirits of the unborn were assigned to the Omayakan, to certain earthly parents only by their divine command. Tonakotli is the most interesting of the male high gods. While his, while his name means lord of our substance, that is, maize, corn, he is in reality the first known sun god, a god so old by the time of the Aztecs that his cult had ceased and only his antiquity was remembered. He was the heat, the light, or the fire in the sky that is essential to all life. He wears fire dragons on his brow as befits the supreme sky god. He waves a fan of quetzal feathers that symbolize the sky, and all things else he has shown to be an imperial figure. In the most refined myth of creation coming down to us from ancient Mexico, Tonactocli was said to have divided the waters of earth from the waters of the sky by blowing on them, that is to say by inserting the air between them. Then we are further told that he created Quetzalcoatl, god of the air, by his breath alone. 
Then we realize that intuitively we have pretty well identified that God who first was crystallized out of the Newman of the sky. Though his date, though to this date his name was Seven Flower, which identifies him as the sun. Tunuktukli was still a god of the whole sky. Whether diurnal or nocturnal, an avatar of his, Sidlet Lonak, was the Milky Way and the Lord of the Night. The levels of the sky below Oimekon were thought to be the domiciles of various gods and powers, the order of these beings fluctuating according to which their sources we use. Some fill the levels with the 13 greatest gods, others with items that logically can be considered a celestial in origin such as dust, wind, stars, and birds. Both kinds of lists, however, culminate with the apparent high gods of Omeyakon. In other words, the priests could use the levels either for god readings or their own, or for popular etiological purposes and other myths. Besides being structured in levels, the sky had another and probably more basic form, that of a firmament firmament upheld by four Atlantes, each one named and each one additionally resident in a well-known constellation of stars. These four supporting beings are of interest because of their demonic characters and also because they had counterparts in the Stygian sky below the world. They are the Zitsamine, the plural, who are in a final destruction at the end of time will shrug off the firmament and let it come crashing down upon the earth. The four are avatars or emanations of a single female apparition of the night sky named Zitsamittal. I have mentioned her, her before. Folklore made much of this giantess in the heavens. I have previously noted that a deification of Ilhawkwale, the sky, was most closely approached in the person of Quetzalcoatli or Tenochtitlan. Yet even they do not perfectly express the sky as a single entity. But if there was no divinity who embodied perfectly the day sky, there did exist the specific deity who summed up the frightfulness of the night sky, the Gorgonian Zitzamittal, who we can see now that when one considered sky in terms of 13 levels, the concept suggested the sky of day. On the other hand, if the sky was thought of as having supporting pillars, the tendency was to apply the concept to the night. Zitzamittal is a demonic counterpart of the high, goss, high goddess Sitlanitic, who was the great mother embodied in the Milky Way. Zitzamittal is depicted as a skeleton equipped with talons for her hands and feet and having a long penis hanging down between her legs in the form of a rattlesnake. She is closely connected with the stars, which can be thought of as Zitzamine waiting for that fateful time when they too will descend on the races of men and annihilate them. In such a mythic view, the whole field of the stars becomes malevolent. One could imagine the stars in another fashion, however, namely as the Mimixcoa. The word for them is the plural form of the name Mexicoatle, the cloud serpent, and they were thought to be either the souls of dead warriors or evil sorcerers. When contemplated in their myriad, the stars were the 400, which is a way of saying innumerable ones. When given specific names, however, they were five of them, titans out of the early levels of Mesoamerican religion who acknowledged Mescahuatl as their leader. 
Their, feather, their father was the sun, and their mother was the avatar of earth who disgorged the underground waters, spilling them out of springs and caves. The Memeskatl were said to have emerged out of the womb of earth through the seven caves, from which series of fissures the Aztecs themselves also claimed to have come. But the Memeskatl were even more closely identified than this. They were the ancestral dead, those who had slipped away into namelessness, but who now, as a kind of larval mass, lived in far northern skies. Specifically, the cloud serpent forefathers were the circumpolar stars that during the wheeling of the night sky did not drop below the horizon. All the other stars, which visibly weakened and fell into the earth before the dawn, were known as the 400 Southern. When depicted in art, stars were shown as wide open eyes peering down through the curtain of the sky. The ancestors, in other words, did not sleep. There was a counterpopulation among the conspir conspicuous tenants of the sky. These were the Elhuacapalan, or the sky children. The as yet unborn who were to enter into their human bodies through the wombs of women and who were sent down from Omeyakon uh, by the two high gods. Thus there existed the concept of mankind as owning both a past and a future that were rendered visible in the night sky. Only the present generation of men was missing from this huge ecclesial, uh, ele ec celestial mural. Oh, sorry, celestial mural. Uh, mural. Such a conjoined stellar mythology and eschatology differs radically from the science of beginnings and endings in the earth religion in which men simply appear from out of the ground and return thereunto. <clears throat> As stars, the ancestors had a semi-divine status that in later speculation moved toward full divinization. Because the gods lived an imperial life, it was only natural that the priests assigned to each one a constellation or a bright star. Quetzalcoatl is the morning star, merely best known of these assignments. The question whether there were 13 of these constellations, emblems of the 13 gods that formed a Mesoamerican zodiac, through which the sun or moon traveled has remained unproven up to now. It is possible, however, that something like the Zodiac did exist, at least in the Maya area. One of the gaps of understanding of the Aztecs is the extent of their astronomical knowledge. Lunar and Venusian counts are attested from Maya sources and even eclipse tables. These presuppose advanced celestial observation techniques and records that in turn presuppose the charting and naming of many stars and planets. Only pitiful fragments of such a stellar corpus remain to us from our Aztec sources, nor do we know how they remembered from earlier or richer times. We do know that they designated certain stars and constellations by representing the four compass points and the center, the little bear that was seen by the Aztecs as the baton that Quetzalcoatl held in his hand the Zonacuatl, and this stood for the north. The Pleiades were referred to as the crowd, or the marketplace, and they undoubtedly represent the zenith, or center direction. The other constellations, the face of the scorpion, the fire drill, and what may be translated as the night carrier, cannot positively be assigned to the three remaining directions, though the fire drill, the sword and belt of Orion, is a good candidate for the East. 
We are cautioned, however, against assuming that the Aztecs saw the night sky as we do, purely as a field of objects. Rather, to them, it was a manual of ineffable symbols, a Sibylian leaf, and an encyclopedia. Also, it was a thing of pure terror. Up to now, I have studiously avoided referencing to astrology in this book, a word that refers to occult influences exercised over people by the set of the night sky and the position of the planets at the moments of their birth. This hoary fallacy, still living among us today, had its counterpart among the Mesoamericans, an artificial set of juxtapositions that were carefully worked out and recorded in the Tonalamatl, or Book of Destiny Days. Instead of astrologers, however, the Aztecs produced the Tomalapoca, one skilled in the count of destiny days. Like the European astrologers, the two needed to know the hour and day of a child's birth to read his horoscope. But they found that information of the Tomalapoca, not in the position or conjunction of certain stars. The Tomalapoca and the arts of its interpretation were attributed to Quetzalcoatl. It is this sacred writ that kept securely within the ambience of the sky religion, the science of forecasting the future, which prerogatives gave to the religion and the Quetzalcoatl and unestimable prestige. Long after the warlike character of Quetzalcoatl as C. Akatol had weakened under the challenge of other gods, his priestly and cryptic powers continued without diminution. None of the other three religions had such easy access to the arcane. Nevertheless, can we only believe, because of the Mesoamerican abiding interest of the stars, that planetary and lunar conjunctions were somehow important to them and formed a part of his augural skill. A kind of astrology there may have been, through Sehagon says no. Sun and moon completed the astral population, each being allotted to a specific level in the sky. <clears throat> the beliefs about these two were so various that it is impossible to assemble them into one pattern. The best-known assemblage myth in which all the inhabitants of the sky are worked into a single narrative is in the Aztec Gigantomachy. In that earth, or in that myth, Moon is the leader of the evil and titanic Mexico. Earth is inert and acts only as the womb from which springs the sun, who defeats the moon and her starry host. The weapon that he uses to achieve victory is the fire dragon. Last, there was air itself, but inasmuch as this was the god Ehokatle Quetzalcoatl, who is the matter of most of this book. I will not expiate or expatiate on here. Rainbows, water spouts, comets, and the haze from brush fires were assembled into the inventory of the sky all thereby receiving their status in the world of things. The place of the sky religion among other cults. Let us now specify the characteristics of this ancient sky religion. Inasmuch as I am looking ahead to some of the matter taken up in more detailed fashion later, there is no need to provide the reader here with more than a sketch of what we'll find in succeeding chapters. The items to occur to me are as follows. One. The dragon was an emblem of the sky as homogeneous segments of nature. It was prefigured the sky as a set of desperate concepts concerned with celestial activity in which actors, whether stellar, lunar, solar, or hyperborean, displayed various kinds of movement. 2. The sky religion was non-agricultural in spite of its connections with water. 
Quetzalcoatl was indeed closely related to Tlaloc, but there was never the slightest confusion between the two. Quetzalcoatl was not a farmer's god, and the interest of this sky religion in water was directed not towards its uses in human culture, but towards its fundamentally draconian natures. 3. The sky religion did not concern itself necessarily with fertility, but again, not always with references to agriculture. Much of the time, it concentrated on human procreation. Thus, a phallic cult became part of the religion. The patronage of the god Quetzalcoatl was the founding and maintenance of noble lineages, which we shall be discussing later, followed from this. 4. The religion was explicated in terms of an archetypical myth wherein Quetzalcoatl was said to be the son of the dawn, masculine, and the earth, feminine, as well as the killer, sacrificer, and awakener or avenger of the light. The multiplicity of avatars that the religion delighted in revolving around the figure of Quetzalcoatl, who is thus on the one hand the sum of all of them and on the other a discrete deity himself. The religion created a distinctive sense of time, in this construct time or in this construct time was seen as being compounded of a the daily and seasonal swings of the sun b the revolution of the planet venus c an arcane numerology meshed with symbols namely the tonalpoali and d the five eons of cosmic time it did not, however, succeed in reducing all of them into one inconclusive formulation. 7. The Ball Game was a central cult act in the religion, although its importance fluctuated with the passage of the centuries. This sports arena featured the avatar of Quetzalcoatl, who was the evening star. The death of light is cele celebrated in it, and possibilities of rejuvenation are hinted at within it. 8. The myth of the victory of the sun over the morning star sets forth a dogma of the sky religion contrasting with the above but evolving from it, and it, the rebirth of light is celebrated. 9. The use of twinning, iconography and mythology, was central in the structure of the divine world as seen in the sky religion. The dragon was often, by nature, twofold or two-headed. The night scene itself was twofold, and a reading of it depended on what in which aegis it was under and that of the morning or that of the evening star. 10. The sky religion provided a reasoned cosmogra uh, cosmography showing the heavens structured on 13 levels. 11. The sky religion considered the night sky as dominant over the day sky. It therefore demanded a significant cult celebration for the former. The ball game was developed in conformity with this emphasis. 12. The religion evoked the idea that ultimate authority must always be celestial, and to this end, it deified a pair of high gods, the linchpins of the religion. They were admitted to be the extractions and were not worshipped. Only in the context of these two could creativity, activity, or creative activity take place. And 13. The religion preempted the concept of the priesthood, perhaps even originating it, and gave it the permanent sacrificial orientation that it would assume. A word of caution here. The sky religion interpreted other aspects of Mesoamerican religion so subtly that it is difficult to grasp it as a thing apart. 
Yet, if we do not make the distinction, we cannot see Quetzalcoatl clearly. He remains an unexplained deity among other unexplained deities. We certainly cannot prove or disprove that the people of Mesoamerica strictly detached a sky religion from the whole matrix of their religious beliefs and practices, but it is probable that the priesthood of Quetzalcoatl appreciated the uniqueness of their worship. In any case, the concept of the sky religion is a tool that enables us to discuss Quetzalcoatl intelligibly. Again, I do not wish to give the impression that the sky religion represents the acme of Mesoamerican religion. It was among four, all making up that greater melange I mentioned above. There was the agricultural and burial complex that we call the religion of the earth. Because of its heavy concentration in the production of food, this religion never came into conflict with the sky religion. In fact, in ways, it complemented it. The religion of the fire god was no doubt the most venerable of all, and many of its observances were domesticated and remained domestic. As we might expect to the other religions and contributed fire as an ultimate offering. Thus the fire religion acted as a cement binding them all together. The religion of Tezcatlipoca most nearly resembles biblical religion and its vision of the oneness of the God and his untrammeled will is worth noting. We shall consider the clash between this religion and that of the sky in the closing pages of this book. The sky religion was not as clearly defined as one of the other three religions. Its forte lay in its ability to interpret them, or to attract their sensual deities into its orbit. As one of the four, it was thus unique in its scope. One can imagine a situation in which the sky religion might have acted as a catalyst in organizing the mass of Mesoamerican cults into a larger religion maintained by a single celestial dogma. For reasons that will become clear later on, it never did. It moved outward from its coastal homeland with a missionizing vigor denied to the other cults, but it had no call to eliminate its competitors. It was an elite religion, while the others, two of them, nature religions, were the possessions of the people. In summary, it can be seen that the sky was the home of the worst and the best of the Mesoamerican imaginings. If the three other religions were jointly the Mesoamerican acceptance of reality and his distillation of it, the sky religion encouraged him to pronounce as over and against them his more important arbiter deita. For him, the sky religion presented above all the occasion to think, to tell stories, and to verbally wonder. We could go on differentiating the sky religion from the others of Mesoamerica. It stood out by the reason of its intellect and socially conscious orientation that the Emextilacula, the painter of books, who produced such magnificent visual records of Mesoamerica, was a man of the Quetzalcoatl faith and skilled in his arts. It was he who knew that the sky had been created on the date the one read, the Sea Acatel, this memorable point in the past was also the birth date and therefore the name of the god Quetzalcoatl, who stood at the center of the sky religion. Book 2 The Polymorphous God, the Demiurge, the Culture Hero, and the Ancestor this chapter begins the discussion of Quetzalcoatl's many avatars, and in particular that of the wind, Ihecatle, who seems to have been the earliest. Ihecatle is described in some detail with special references to his bukal mask and his curious celestial baton. Next, I touch on an aspect of the god's uniqueness in considering his patronage of circular temples as opposed to those with a square basis. 
I emphasize his closeness to a man and his capacity as a cultural hero. The elements of a man's culture are that or of the gods doing, then they are listed and analyzed, particularly his curious connections with maize. Two other important offices of this are also noted, those relating to human fecundity and to lineage. In the latter capacity, the god was connected to every royal house. A portion of the Selden role is commented on in the instances of the god's ancestral guardianship. I finally, I describe the god and his cult in the holy city of Cholula. The centrality of Quetzalcoatlay. In the religion of the sky were many gods and demons. Of these, there are few who may not be considered in some way. Every other avatars of Quetzalcoatlay in the first or second degree are alternate patrons of realms generally ascribed to him. Such demons as Zetzalamitl, the god Zippy, and Huatzalapotli, and few other members of the sky religion are alone exempt in his influence and do not share in his mythology. His pivotal position in this religion is broken only at the point where he becomes a spiritualized instrument in the hands of a higher god. I have reported that Tunakatutli, here a creator resident in the depths of the Milky Way, engendered Quetzalcoatlay with his breath so that he might go down among men to bring them guidance. As the Elon Vital of the sky, the feathered serpent pro properly provided such a focus to the pantheon. Whether we are dealing with an aspect of the planet Venus, with divine sanctions for rule, or with cloudbursts and waterspouts, all derived from the single concept of the sky as a kinetic to the nth degree, which is a definition of Quetzalcoatlay, an oh, illustration of this, I present a resume of certain pertinent pages of the Codex Vienna, a mixtech document. The passage begins with a scene in the heavens in which Inchoet principles and night alone are shown as existing. Two high gods then put in their appearance, they are defined for us in terms of air or wind. For both of them wear a cask Ihakatl's buccal mask. Air or sky, in other words, is already posited to exist even before the full creation. After this, assorted demons and dragons are produced, which initial bursts of creativity culminates with the two high gods evoking the sacrificial knife as the primordial principle. This instrument in turn gives birth to Quetzalcoatl in his avatar as the Nine Winds. He surrounds himself with 16 subsidiary avatars, each distinctive. All of this takes place in the sky, and it is there that we see the nine wind finally being given the various items of this regalia that will identify him henceforth as Hihelquatle. Equipment in this characteristic fashion, the god now ascends to earth carrying the staff of the planet Venus. Among the deities who greet him on his arrival on Earth is a pair of the Zolotl avatars, each one of them turquoise, the other gold, or one of them turquoise, the other gold. They control the entrances and exits to the underworld and are obviously of great importance inasmuch as they are shown to have been in existence before the nine winds themselves. The activities of nine wind include shouldering up the sky so that in and the ocean of the waters that it contains may be adequately supported. In this he performs, of course, as the wind god, Eokwatle. Only then can the organization of the world below follow, as well as the naming of the elements of nature. 
After this, in his role of patron of lineages, he arrives a marriage involving the god Five Winds, a celestial avatar of himself, thus begetting the royal line of Mestec ancestral deities and totemic beings. He then proceeds to designate the role and insignia of each and the great gods in which office he is acting as a priest organizing the pantheon. And finally, as master of omens, he brings the narcotic mushroom into the lives of the gods, thus indicating his prophetic powers. The above is not an exhaustive list of the appearances of Quetzalcoatl in the Codex Vienna, but it is enough to illustrate my contention that Quetzalcoatl was a god who in his multifaceted person dominated the sky religion. He was a god who manifested himself only in such theophanies as could be derived from a source in the sky, and in all such instances he was a sensual figure. The extraordinary ubiquity of Quetzalcoatl in the mythical record derives from the simple fact that only the sky spans up and down, rising and falling, night and day, light and darkness. Earth cannot be so divided or twinned. Earth is dead, unmoving, and center. Sky is a circumambient, and it is in motion. It is nowhere, yet it leads everywhere. Quetzalcoatl as the wind. If we take the name Quetzalcoatl to designate the god in his draconian form, namely as Sky, both generalized and unspecified, then the god's first avatar of this numinous continuum will be as Eocotle, the wind. Eocotle is the one in the several names given to the god that was most immediate referencing to nature. All of this other name stem from aspects of human culture, which such as sacrifice, the a girl almanac, the commerce, and so forth. Wind is an indefinable force, walking in a restless way and appearing at times as a demonic presence. In their mythologies, many people have separated sky from wind or air and cast the latter in the role of a supporter or stay for the former. Iokotle was no exception to this. He was known to support the sky when it was considered as the shell of the firmament. So we have the sky, who was Quetzalcoatl, snored up by the most active avatar of Quetzalcoatl, Iokotl. The wind. At the topmost level of the sky lived Omotakwatle and Omekuhetle, two lord and two lady. The name of this celestial religion was appropriately known as Omiyokan, the place of Tunis or coupling. In Aztec mythology, Quetzalcoatl came from Omiyokan, and this derivation of etherealized natures as wind or air. It is almost certain that Eocuatli was looked upon by priests as the breath of the Tonecatutli, another form of Tulord. It is the spiritualized avatar of Quetzalcoatl who acts as demiurge or activator. The word for air or breeze in Nihatli is Ikatl, which when reduplicated as Huacuatli takes on the stronger meaning. Wind while the word could be used to describe breath in certain combinations as heokwatika, breathing, it is to be distinguished from the customary word for breath, heokwatle. Therefore, is the word that designates one of the more common features of the natural world, the wind. By adding increasing violence to the concept of the wind, we can derive squalls, tempests, and hurricanes. At least as far back as is upon times, wind was depicted as a human figure plunging down from the sky, shown as a double-headed dragon to whip up the waters below. Wind could be also understood as a human figure wearing a bukal mask at the Olmec type and a beard, holding up the sky. His body was also shown as a curled cloud, and his belt of dangling heads, the star, stood for the overarching sky. 
by is upon times when it is clearly distinguished from the sky. We have been slow in our understanding of the god Ehekatla as a voice as well as a power. Previously, I noted that the mystery and the violence of the wind as being the essence are the essence. And later concept was derived from the periodic cyclonic invasions of the coastal lands out of the Gulf and Caribbean waters from hurricanes, a twister once experienced can never be forgotten. The Mesoamericans built Iacatle on that model, and they were not slow, therefore in stressing his stentorian voice. In Teotihuacan times, the feathered conch shell trumpet was made into a pseudo-divinity itself, mellow and oracular. The ancient buco mask belonged to Quetzalcoatl and surely connected with wind conceived of as a voice. He's against conceived of as motion. Certain drums also spoke for him. Some cities in Mesoamerica regulated their life with the morning and evening drums sounded by the priests, thus opening and closing the day with the gods' haunting clamor. In the legend, Quetzalcoatl Topalatzin is said to have stood up on top of the legendary Mount Zatzopetl, calling mountain, to preach his message. From that eminence in central Mexico, his voice responded to the most distant coastlands, exhorting men to penitential acts and blood sacrifices. The voice deeply afflicted people. Yet what else might be expected of a god who is described as the very figuration of Ekelamakal, the whirlwind? In the Tonapoholi, count the second of 20-day signs as the wind, Iokwatle. It is also ill-omened and compared uh, competed in this with other of the 20 signs that formed a part of the god's name known as the Kotle, the snake. But there was more of the god's nature than brutal bellowing. The other way of comprehending the wind rose from a negative feature, namely that its voice could never be centrally located. The sky religion did not deny the square five-directional pattern of the world as taught, for instance, in the cults of the fire god, which stressed exact and formal locality and derived all directions from a, central, a center of fire known as the divine hearth. Ihacatl's world was round, and while the four cardinal directions were indeed of concern to him, the plasticity of day and night allowed him to pass beyond a rigid definition of absolute direction. Thus, to the terror of the gods, through his stridency instilled in his worshippers, was adding something that a sense of cosmic illusion, or at least of indefiniteness, a loss of seat and place, and a sense of darkness. This was the very opposite of the comfort communicated to one by the hearth and its permanent locations, its light and its comforting warmth. And with the wind increasing, it was said, the dust swirled up, it roared, it howled, it became dark, it blew in all directions, there was lightning, and it grew wrathful. If for a moment we turn from a consideration of the wind as the single divine being called Iokwatle, what about the wind as a multiple animistic entity? When so depicted, winds were seen to be serpents or black dragonettes. These were the Ekototintan, the little winds. When the feast of the mountains dome images were made of these helpers or pluralizations of Quetzalcoatl, the Ekototin were generally considered to be noxious, and they played a prominent role in the underworld. As wind snakes and wind imps, we see them as the Codex Borgia, jostling together in a kind of cave of the winds. 
actually a huge mortuary jar where they were confined while in the underworld. This passage calls to mind the cave where Areolus, the Greek god of the winds, kept his own mercurial pack confined. The ecototentin could be provoked or summoned at certain ceremonies by the waving of fans. When considered in the plural, they lived in the seventh level of the heavens. Eocotle is a single being could be found in the 13th or summit terrace of the sky, an eminence with the two high gods shared with him. In the Tomalamotle, however, Eocotle is stationed in the ninth heaven, wind inhabited many levels in the sky. We know that in the understanding of the Mesoamerican winds was a primordial force. We have seen that the Mexicans believed that the initial act of creation, the Tenochtitlan, blew his breath over chaos to divide the waters of the sky from those of the earth. We have also seen that the Mixtecs taught that the two high gods, both named One Deer, performed their first acts of creation by the power of wind, while they were also finding the first identifiable four of their progeny spirits of the air. And it is well known from myth how Quetzalcoatl sent his hurricane breath to blow the reluctant sun out upon the first of his daily journeys. Thus, as wind bringing both light and time into the world, wind is the tool by which the highest god creates, and it is thus consequentially an instrument of power. But wind and sky to the Mesoamerican mind were indistinguishable. The oldest avatar of the Quetzalcoatl as bears recognizable dates named as Seven Wind. He is shown in the Mextec source as the first of the four spirits of the air mentioned above. We were created by the two gods, one deer. He appears in the culture of Teotihuacan with his hands uplifted to the sky. A corresponding scene of the Zichuacoco is abbreviated in the depiction of two hands upholding the sky band. The Nuale of his avatar is a rapatorial board, undoubtedly the eagle who, like the bicephalic sky dragon, can be shown with two heads. Seven winds appear in late classic as a young god gazing out from the open maw of the sky dragon. Seven winds is thus a form of Quetzalcoatl, so close to the original Eocuatl as to be perhaps synonymous, further demonstrating that this passage in myth where he most created men out of ashes as the fifth sun began, almost surely we have seen him in early form of Quetzalcoatl as the sky. One can only guess which came first. Eocotle as a single godhead, in other words, a concept of wind as an indivisible entity or as pluralistic phenomenon. I prefer to believe that the two were from the beginning coexistent modes of appreciating the mystery and power of the air, neither negating the other, but of course we have no means of finding out. It appears likely that the priesthood would have been mainly interested in developing the former, leaving the latter to the popular understanding of natural phenomenon. The problem is exactly paralleled in the case of the rain god Lelok oh, and his many montane manifestations, the Laluk. Depictions of Eocuatle, the anthropomorphic god. Wind, of course, cannot be depicted visually. It is difficult even to suggest it verbally. Wind combines impalpability with force and unexpected twain. We are therefore not surprised to see that the god, when finally representing anthropomorphically, is arrayed in the most exotic of fashion. At first glance, the god is grotesque and entirely arbitrary, having nothing to do with serpents or dragons, or anything else for that matter. 
In his temple in Tula, his image was remembered as it lay covered, and he lay with only his face covered, and it is said he was monstrous. His face was like a huge battered stone, a great fallen rock. It was not made like that of a man, and his beard was very long, exceedingly long. This was certainly an anthropomorphic description, and the god comes through us as brutish, even dangerous. This is not commonly held opinion of the god Quetzalcoatl. In iconography, he is distinctive. To begin with, God's body is over all black, occasionally showing faint circles that refer to the stars in the night sky. His beard is prominently indicated, and his face paint usually consists of stripes running down through the eyes or dividing two fields of color. Often an eye is shown extruding from its socket, a statement of blindness with the implication of auto-sacrifice. His mouth parts, when shown, are daubed with red. Perhaps the most striking thing about the god's appearance is his buccal mask, which is always painted red. So strangely is the mask formed that it almost defies verbal description. On first appraisal, it appears to be a bird's bill carved in wood with two sharpened mouth parts surmounting by a squared off or broken nose. A curved fang or barbell protrudes from the corner of the mouth. A comment on this buccal mask more at length in the sections that follow. Also distinctive of the god is his conical huaxtic cap, generally cut off at the top and divided into a red side and a black or blue side with a star between them. This is a pictorial metaphor for the planet Venus, which always stands between night and day. At other times, the cap is made of the jaguar skin and rises to a peak with the star placed in the center. Or a cross may replace the star, probably an ancient glyph from the sky, as it's crossing from day to night. Into the cap are thrust a sharpened bone and a magui thorn for the penitential bloodletting. Extending from the front of the cap and dangling before the god's eyes is a spray of flowers with a hummingbird attached to it as of the act of sucking nectar. The headband rims the cap. This can be either an accordion-plated undulation of material, probably raw cotton, or a fretted design, which probably a glyph for cloudland. In addition, he could wear his hair a knotted bow of some design as his loincloth. As an occipital direction, uh, decoration, he wears a panache of quetzal feathers plus a fan of black feathers interspersed with stars and contrasting red quills. The fan probably represents the night sun whom Quetzalcoatl as Zolotl sacrifices in the underworld. In some representations, the god also wears in his hair a plated tape which had been thought to represent the 52-year calendar around. He was clad in a short kilt and a loincloth, the two aprons of which in front and back are round-ended and patterned with crossbars. In his ears, he wears distinctive hooked and tangled shell ornaments. Probably mother of pearl around his neck is a collar of seashells, either real or imitated in gold. As a most important talisman, he wears around his neck a conch shell, sectioned to bring out the spinal structure of its interior. This is his so-called wind jewel, or whirling wind pendant. While it most obviously relates to the thunderous voice of the storm, at a deeper level of symbolism, it undoubtedly means the underworld of the night sky, the favorited habitat of the god. 
He wears jaguar skin anklets with rattles attached. He carries a priest's incense bag and a shield with a bottom fringe of aquatic bird feathers and a device showing either the wind jewel or a symbol resembling a St. Andrew's cross. Most important, he wears a special baton called the Zonaculi, adorned with circular objects symbolizing stars. This too will be commented on at length. All of the above oddments were classed as his divine regalia, known as the Teotelequetl, and they can appear in any number of combinations. Taken together, they fully define the god as Quetzalcoatl in a human form. Each of the items had a meaning. The chronology of their attraction into this iconography would be the utmost interest if we could recover it, for it would document the deity's development. By Aztec times in central Mexico, that is the way the high priests of Quetzalcoatl were dressed. How he appeared in other places in earlier times in Mesoamerica is not as well known. In Cybele, for instance, the regalia are different. While in Palenque, if the god of the Temple of the Cross is indeed Quetzalcoatl, there is no similarity to be seen. All of this is again warns us the great range of the god and his many impersonations. The Buco Mask That the Aztec Quetzalcoatl is ultimately derived from the Gulf Coast is certain, considering not only that the waxstick headpiece that he wears, but also the references to marine shells and aquatic birds in his regalia. There is thus the possibility that some of the other items are also to be linked with the coastal areas, for example, the buccal mask. Durin described the mask as being that of a bird, and he not only draws attention to the warty excrescence over the snout, but also mentions the images of an outstretched tongue. Some late examples in art add a complete set of teeth. Though the buccal mask is described as peculiar, this god is worn only by him and his avatars. There is still no consensus about its meaning or derivation. One belief is that it evolved from an original duckbill mask, to which alterations were made during the course of the centuries. In this theory, the priests who wore it will therefore have been active in a cult that had to do with ducks or with certain species of duck. In this respect, we recall that the feathers of the Zomatl duck adorned parts of the Quetzalcoatl headdress. The religious officiant wearing a duckbill's mask is known from Almec Ezepan in Mayan Rapustrian art, the Tuxla statuette being the most famous of these. Migratory ducks occurred seasonally everywhere in the coastal lowlands of Mesoamerica and was a significant part of the diet there. We might even guess that this was a mallard, Quetzalcoatl, that it was sensationally colored first, attracted to the attention of the early cultists. We know that ducks possessed a clear symbolic meaning for some of the earlier Mesoamericans, so they carved duck heads and bills in jade to be worn as pendants. As an aquatic bird, the duck could suggest at once both air and water, the respective provinces of Iocuatl. The regularity of its autumnal appearance in the coastal waterways would add the idea of time and periodicity. And a relief from one of the Tajan ball courts, the god Iokwatle once appears floating above a cult scene as a spirit of the air while wearing a duckbill mask. The date of the carving is late classic, but post-classic times, however, the duckbill mask that is identifiable as such has disappeared from the archaeological records. How can we square this early duckbill mask, which is always viewed frontally with the bukal mask shown as the pointed bill or snout with a broken nasal projection and seen in line drawings always in profile? The answer is, we cannot. 
In our present state of uncertainty, we can, however, advance a tentative suggestion that there may have been two deities of Numina symbolized as the two masks, both coming from the Almec times. The early duckbill mask might be the emblem of the sky as a set of temporal bonds, the kind of pre-calendric Numen. The later Bukal mask commonly worn by the Iaquatle may have been a kenning for the dragon, who is a more generalized sky. This latter would be the dragon, much as we have already described him, but with his head fantastically elaborated and inscrawled. This mask will have been contrived of features taken from the creatures of desperation as the crocodile, the tapir, the trogon, the duck, the serpent, and possibly the jaguar. Each of the suggested animals will have had their artist a special meaning and a special power, and all of them will have added to a full definition known as the sky dragon. His connections with wind and water, day and night, being somehow included in the lot. Priests of the sky religion will then have to carry out their ceremonial duties wearing the dragon mask. Although its configuration will have varied from culture to culture in Sibyl, for instance, the mask shows a sharp, heavy, stabbing bill. In Tikal, it is indisputably the snout of a crocodile, while among the Zapotecs, it is the back-rolled snout of the dragon. Behind the duckbill mask, there's probably stood a different cult. Let us guess that it involved a set of mantic practitioners who straddled the profession of priests and shaman along the Gulf Coast and who controlled a distinct and esoteric religion. Ultimately, their specialities led them into making astronomical computation, and in doing this, they must have been inexorably led to elaborate parts of the sky religion. In the process and along the way, they will have discarded their very specialized mask for some variety of a dragon mask which finally comes down to us as the orthodox mask of the Aztec god Eucuatle. Without some such mingling, it is difficult to see how Quetzalcoatle can have become distinguished by a mask that means simultaneously wind and water, the planet Venus, and the callings of the priests. All of the above is pure, pe uh, pure speculation. More will be learned about Quetzalcoatl's buccal mask when a typology becomes established. Until then, we can only ascribe it and wonder.